We are here. We have gotten to the final book in the Lord of the Rings series. It's Chase and Joshua Factor Fantasy, guys, and we are very, very excited to start the Return of the King today. We're going to be tackling chapters one through five here in part one of this book. And it just is really amazing how fast it went and how soon it seems to us, Chase and I, that we've gotten to the final installment of this. It seems to me, you know, this flew by a lot faster than some of the other series and franchises that we've done into this point. And so it's really excited to kind of dig into the first part here of, of the last novel and really kind of dissect it and see where the thing, you know, I haven't read this this novel specifically, I don't know, since I was 13, 14 years old. So it's going to be really cool to kind of dive back into it, get an adult perspective on it, and, you know, just kind of see where it takes us. You know, this is the this is the book that ties it all together, and I'm excited to jump into it. Before I do, I'll turn it over to Chase to say a few words, and, uh, yeah, we'll go ahead and, and pass it along to him. Yeah, man, I was impressed with it. I liked it. Uh, so far, I mean... You can definitely kind of tell a difference starting with this book on how it starts off actually pretty action packed compared to if you go back to the fellowship and how it takes time for things to really get going. Because, you know, we're kind of at the end of this uh, gear here going up the top of Mount Doom. (laughs) Not quite there yet, but we're almost at the top, man. And it's just been one hell of a ride. And it's awesome uh but yeah just like you said i haven't picked up this book since i think it was the eighth grade (laughs) for me i still remember um i read these books when the hype was coming out because as i was growing up i was more into harry potter because i didn't really know what a a lord or a ring was (laughs) and then i found out later on and it just sucked me in from the get-go and uh, here we are, man, just, uh, you know, climbing that trip to the top of the mountain um, with one tricksy person and two loyal hobbits. So, well, let you take it away, man. For sure. And let's think about that for a second, too, because th- these books are kind of a hard read for most adults. And we were sitting here reading them as, you know, teenagers or early teens at that. And, you know, we get such a different level of perspective on you know it was enjoyable at that point in time we, we like read it and it stuck with us to realize it's one of the better fantasy fiction franchises that are out there and that was at a young age and now we're doing this all over again as adults and it's just really interesting that I, there's a lot more things i'm picking up now or my, i could have just forgotten as well but i'm sure you know the types of words that they use the, the level of detail is just so much stronger than i really remember i remember like the big crazy moments that happen the obviously between battles and and things of that nature but you know all the description and detail now reading as an adult you grow a different type of appreciation for it it's not just an action-packed fantasy fiction novel series like there's a lot that goes into it as well it's very nuanced and like i said we kind of grow a different level of appreciation as we get older and see it from a different perspective as an adult versus as we when we were children so no it's really cool man i'm really excited to dive into it so before i do uh, but first off, let's get some glasses in the air and raise a toast to the last book in the Lord of the Rings series. Cheers, my brother. I'm excited Cheers, to crack brother. this bad boy open. And uh, yeah, and then I'll give a quick recap and we'll dive in. But Malice in the Chalice, man. Malice in the Chalice, man. Off to the pit of misery with you. <sighs> Nothing like the pit That's of misery. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, if this is your first time joining us, just to give a quick recap of where we kind of left off with the books up until this point, 
the books have now done this thing where they're shifting perspectives and following certain it's, it's, it's not intertwined like the movies are so you know in the movies you'll see one scene it's Legolas, Aragorn and Gimli and the next scene it could be Frodo and Sam and the next scene it could be Merry and Pippin like it's not like that in the novel. It sticks with one perspective up until the next, you know, chapter or so, and even so, it always does keep Frodo and Sam separately. And so, in sticking with that throughout the two towers, we you know we would get Frodo and Sam at the very second part of the book and kind of had to catch up to where everyone else is at reading through it. And it's kind of similar here in the Return of the King. The first part of the book, especially the first five chapters, and I, I did go ahead and take a look all the way through it. It does kind of follow Gandalf, Aragorn. Legolas, Gimli, Merry, Pippin, and and Rohan. Really, they're all. It does follow those here in the first part of this novel, and then the second part of the novel is going to go back to Frodo and Sam. But what, what's really cool, what the Return of the King, this specific book, does, is it'll say things like Pippin looked up at the same moon that Frodo was at at this point in this stage. So you can kind of see where. Frodo and Sam are along the way, even though we're not really reading it from their perspective, because he'll say, you know, they looked up at the same moon. Oh, and you know, Pippin wouldn't know this, but Frodo was looking at the king's head at Lysira's Mongol Ongol or whatever it is. So, like, you know, it's just cool to how it kind of keeps it an idea of where the timeline is with everybody. See so that way, you know where each character is and each storyline is in conjunction with what area you're reading. So, I thought that was really cool, but. Uh, to give you guys a, a quick recap, if we go all the way back to the first part of the Two Towers, that's the last we've heard of Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, Gandalf, Merry, and Pippin. So we left off with the storming of Isengard after the Battle of Helm's Deep. Gandalf broke Saruman's staff. Pippin took the Palantir. He had that little run-in with the Palantir where the Eye of Mordor kind of locked onto him, tried to get some information out. Uh, he ended up not giving up any crucial information, which was great. And Gandalf ended up giving the Palantir to Aragorn, who is supposed to be like the rightful owner of it. And that's going to come up to play, actually, a little bit today. And then Gandalf took Pippin and rode off with him towards Minas Tirith. And that's kind of where we left off with th- those characters. Then we shifted over to, to Frodo and Sam, who, you know, they were taken captive by Faramir, Boromir's brother. And uh, they ended up, he ended up being a really great guy overall, talking about Faramir. And he did not fall... Uh, you know, susceptible to the ring's allure, and he was able to let Frodo and Sam continue on their journey to Mordor, let Smeagol go with them. Smeagol decides, as Chase says, to get a little tricksy and takes them uh, directly into the lair of Shelob, which is that huge giant spider. They have the big, you know, climactic action there where Frodo gets stabbed by the stinger and he's presumed dead. Uh, Sam takes the ring off Frodo's body, decides to continue the journey on his own then the orcs from the watchtower came down and he decided he needed to go back so that way they didn't do anything to his body he put the ring on and when he was over there he heard the orcs talking and mentioning that frodo is actually just paralyzed but he's still alive and so now they take his body up there to see if he's got anything that they would need and bringing the hobbit to sauron is, is going to be like kind of what the whole the whole deal is what what they're gonna do, and Sam ends up running after them into the tower and tries to catch up, but he ends up getting barred and closed by the door, and that's kind of where we left off on two towers. And so that's a quick synopsis. We're about to jump into the Return of the King now, talk about the first five chapters. The first chapter here is called Minas Tirith, and I'm gonna kind of go through some of the big takeaways that I've had through the chapter. I'll turn it over to Chase through the same, and we'll just kind of keep that same vibe rolling through uh, through these first five in this book. But um, first thing I really I notated was the beacons of Gondor are lit, which means Gondor is calling for aid. And so I wanted to uh, mention something here. It's really on page four in my novel. 
and just a couple of paragraphs I thought were at least interesting enough to, to detail because it really mentions the seven seeing stones that do come up to play. So here on page four, it's the second paragraph. It's uh, basically, it says, For answer, Gandalf cried aloud to his horse, On Shadowfax, we must hasten. Time is short. See, the beacons of Gondor or a light calling for aid. War is kindled. See, there is fire in Amundin and flame in Elinok. And there are ghosts, and there they go speeding west. Nardal, Aralas, Min Rimon, Kalanhad, and the Halifirian on the borders of Rohan. So those are all the, the different beacons that they're lighting all the way through. And, and the, not to mention it at this point in time, but in the film, the whole lighting of the beacons is a lot different and goes a lot differently. And it ends up, they didn't want to call for Rohan's aid in the, in the film. So it's just interesting that little difference there. But uh, to continue on, I just, because uh, they, they, what he was saying too about that and why I mentioned the beacons is they used to not use the beacons. They used to use the seven seeing stones to communicate with each other so the beacons were unnecessary. Um, Next thing uh, I thought was really important to note say is the countries that, that Gondor would normally call for aid from. Not just Rohan, but there are other ones as well, specifically Belfalas. And I guess that's a country to the south that normally comes to Gondor's aid in times of need. And Prince Imrahil, he runs that country in his castle in Dol Amrita by the sea, and he's of high blood. So uh, he's going to be an important character going forward. And if I'm not mistaken, I don't believe he's mentioned in the film series at all. So definitely wanted to, to talk about that. Next big thing I have is the second paragraph on page 8. And the only reason I wanted to mention this is just, it, it kind of really just show. this is one of the things where Tolkien's imagery and detail really puts a good picture in your mind with how he describes this. So I just wanted to read this real quick. It says, Even as Pippin gazed in wonder, the walls passed from the looming gray to white, blushing faintly in the dawn, and suddenly the sun climbed over the eastern shadow and sent forth a shaft that smote the face of the city. Then Pippin cried aloud, for the tower of Ecdelion, standing high within the topmost wall, shone out against the sky, glimmering like a spike of pearl and silver, tall and fair and shapely, and its pinnacle glittered as if it was wrought of crystals, and white banners broke and fluttered from the battlements in the morning breeze, and high and far he heard a clear ringing as silver trumpets." So just really beautiful. Like, like, like that's kind of something that puts a nice picture in your mind of what it's going to look like. And they did an okay job on scene, like, on, on screen. But I, I just, you know, I do think the mind's imagination, the mind's eye, can see things a little differently. And it, it's just pretty cool. One of the things I wanted to talk about. Um, yeah, this is this is another big one too. This I want to talk about. This is the last. This is the way Minas Tirith is constructed. It's almost natural defenses of its city. So I'm just going to read the last paragraph here on page 8 through the break in the page on page 9 of my book. It says, For the fashion of Minas Tirith was such that it was built on seven levels, each delved into the hill, and about each was set a wall, and each wall was a gate, but the gates were not set in a line. The great gate in the city wall was at the east point of the circuit, but the next faced half south and the third half north, and so to and fro upwards, so that the paved way that climbed towards the citadel turned first this way, that across the face of the hill, and each time that it passed the line of the great gate, it went through an arched tunnel, piercing a vast pier of rock whose huge outthrust bulk divided in two all the circles of the city save the first. For partly the, the primeval shaping of the hill, partly by the mighty craft and labor of old, there stood up from the rear of the wide court behind the gate a tower, towering bastion of stone, its edge sharp as a ship keel facing east. Up it rose, even to the level of the topmost circle, and there was crowned by a battlement, so that those in the citadel might, like mariners in a mountain ship, look from its peak, sheer down upon the gate seven hundred feet below. 
and the entrance to the citadel also looked eastward but was delved into the heart of the rock thence a long lamp-lit slope ran up to the seventh gate and the men reached the high court and the, pa the place of the fountain before the feet of the white tower tall and shapely fifty fathoms from its base to the pinnacle where the banner of the stewards floated a thousand feet above the plain a strong citadel it was indeed and not to be taken by a host of enemies if there were any within that could hold weapons unless some foe could come behind and scale the lower skirts of mendolium and so come up the narrow shoulder and join the hill of the guard to the mountain pass but that shoulder which rose to the height of the fifth wall was hedged with great ramparts right up to the precipice that overhung its western end and that space to the houses and domed tombs of bygone kings and lords forever silent between the mountain and the tower and the reason I want to mention that, just like I said, I, I talked about it before I read it, was it talks about the, these defenses that are both natural defenses and stuff that, that the crafters of old put in to like, aid in the city's defense. And all that really shows is it's going to be really difficult to overtake Minas Tirith if it comes to war, which obviously it's coming there. <laughs> We're getting there for sure. Um, next thing, I thought this was cool. Gandalf tries to quick prep Pippin on what not to say as they come before Denethor, who is the steward of Gondor and Boromir and Faramir's father. He's kind of the one that runs everything in Gondor at the moment. Remember, the stewards are there to await the rightful king, but the, the line of kings is thought to be broken, so the stewards are kind of running Gondor on their own. And um, basically, Gandalf's telling them, hey, dude, don't mention Aragorn at all. They don't want like that to be an issue. Say say only what you need to say. And as we remember, Pippin isn't always the greatest at uh, not messing up. So we're gonna see how <laughs> well he does in front of Dinathor, right? Um, but yes, I, I thought that was that was something uh, worth mentioning. I also thought this because the characterization of Dinathor in the book versus the film, I think, is wildly different. In the film, it almost seems like he's just a an old cranky old man who lost his son and so he's kind of driven to madness in a way but there's no real air of power or authority the way that i saw it at least in the film and maybe i just you know think of it different but here in the in the novel it really shows that dinthor has a good level of power and he can ha he has like some level of foresight from the the bloodline of numenor in him and he actually wrestles he almost has like a power struggle with gandalf and you know obviously gandalf is one of the most powerful beings in middle earth at the moment not maybe not the most powerful but definitely maybe top three or five right you know if you think about sauron being one elrond probably being another galadriel being another and then you know gandalf and having dinathor right along there that's 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 saying something so and i just don't think the film really characterized him the same way as the book did but that's the conversation for a different day uh, anyways i wanted to go ahead and read this on page 13, and this is going to be where Pippin describes what happened to Boromir uh, through the, f the first, the second paragraph on page 14. So I'll start where it says, and uh, each, each, this is talking about, the, this is Dinathor right now, who's holding up one half of the great horn cloven through the middle, which is like the wild ox horn bound with silver, and Pippin screams, that's the horn that Boromir always wore. Verily, said Dinathor, and in my turn I bore it, and so did each eldest son of our house, far back into the vanished years before the failing of kings, since Vorindil, father of Mardil, hunted the wild kine of Ara in the far fields of Rune. I heard it blowing dim upon the northern marshes thirteen days ago, and the river brought it to me broken. It will wind no more. He paused, and there was a heavy silence. Suddenly he turned his black glance upon Pippin. What say you to that, halfling? Thirteen. Thirteen days,' faltered Pippin. "'Yes, I think that would be so. "'Yes, I stood beside him as he blew the horn, "'but no help came, only more orcs.' "'So,' said Dinathor, looking keenly at Pippin's face, "'you were there. Tell me more. "'Why did no help come? 
And how did you escape, and yet he did not, so mighty a man as he was, and only orcs to withstand him? Pippin flushed and forgot his fear. The mightiest man may be slain by one arrow, he said, and Boromir was pierced by many. When last I saw him, he sank beside a tree and plucked a black feathered shaft from his side. Then I swooned and was made captive. I saw him no more and know no more. But I honor his memory, for he was very valiant. He died to save us, my kinsman Mariadoc and myself, waylaid in the woods by the soldiery of the Dark Lord, and though he fell and failed, my gratitude is none the less. Then Pippin looked in the old man in the eye, for pride stirred strangely within him, still stung by the scorn and suspicion in that cold voice. Little service, no doubt, will so great a lord of men think to find in a hobbit, a halfling from the northern shire, yet such as it is, I will offer it in payment of my debt. Twitching aside his grey cloak, Pippin drew forth his small sword and laid it at Dinathor's feet. A pale smile, like a gleam of cold sun on winter's eve, passed over the old man's face, but he bent his head, held out his hand, laying the shards of the horn aside. Give me the weapon, he said, and Pippin laid it and presented it hilt to him. Whence came this, said Dinathor, many, many years lie on it. Surely this blade wrought by your by our own kindred in the north in the deep past. It came out of the mounds that lie on the borders of my country, but only evil whites dwell there now, and I will not willingly tell more of them. So I thought there was a couple big things in that passage. Obviously, the, the recap of what happened to Boromir, Dinathor learning of Boromir's fate was huge for him. But on top of that, Pippin enters the service of Lord Dinathor now, which it's interesting because I'm going to mention it here in just a little bit. Gandalf was angry about that in the film, but he p- applauded it in the book. So it's just it's a really weird thing there. But so that was another part. And the third part of that as well is talking about the whites, like the, where he got that um, the sword in the, in the tombs of the Barrow Whites, where they almost were lost before the whole journey ever happened. So that, that before that's when Tom Bombadil came back and, and saved them all. So definitely wanted to mention that. Thought it was important. And yeah, I, 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 the whole reason he even enters the service of Lord Anthor, he believes he owes a debt for Boromir saving him and Mary's life. So I thought that was uh, definitely stuff to, to talk about there. Going on to page 15 on this, this is where I was mentioning how Dinothor is characterized a little bit differently, and Gandalf and him are kind of sizing each other up. This is the third paragraph on page 15. It says, Dinothor looked indeed much more like a great wizard than Gandalf did, more kingly, beautiful, and powerful, and older. Yet a sense other than sight, Pippin perceived that Gandalf had the greater power and the deeper wisdom, and a majesty that was veiled. And he was older, far older. How much older, he wondered. And then he thought how odd it was that he had never thought about it before. Treebeard had said something about wizards, but even then he had not thought of Gandalf as one of them. What was Gandalf? And what far time and place did he come into the world? And when would he leave it? And then his musings broke off, and he saw that Dinothor and Gandalf still looked each other in the eye as if reading the other's mind. But it was Dinothor who first withdrew the gaze. So that just like I'm talking about, like, he didn't really seem to have that kind of authority or power or sense of nobility in the film, at least from my perspective. But here, it's it's completely different. Then, uh, also, I wanted to read the last paragraph on page 17 through the second paragraph on page 18 because this is this also really notates, I, I and it's something I just mentioned here. But let me go ahead and, and mention it. it says. This is Pippin and Gandalf having a conversation now. It says, He is not as other men of his time, Pippin, and whatever he his descent from father to son, by some chance the blood of Westerness runs nearly true in him, as it does in his other son, Faramir, and yet did not in Boromir, whom he loved best. He has long sight. He can perceive. If he bends his will thither, 
Much of what is passing in the minds of men, even of those who dwell far off, it is difficult to deceive him and dangerous to try. Remember that, for you are now sworn to his service. I do not know what put it into your head or your heart to do that, but it was well done. I did not hinder it, for generous deed should not be checked by cold counsel. It touched his heart as well, may I say it, as pleasing as humor, and at least you are free to move about as you will in Minas Tirith when you are not on duty, for there is another side to it. You are at his command, and he will not forget. Be wary still. So all that does is just lead to evidence that I was pointing about how Dinothor is a little bit more powerful than what we kind of remember, and on top of that, Gandalf being happy that Pippin decided to enter the service versus being angry at him. Uh, and then we, uh, the, one of the bigger things here, too, is Gandalf is greatly desiring to find Faramir, but as we know, Faramir was off. Uh, he had that first battle with the Harad soldiers where we saw the Oliphants for the first time back in the Two Towers, and, and then he let Frodo and Sam go, but we don't really know what's happened to him since then, and we'll find out in not too long, but Gandalf is wondering why he hasn't been able to come across or find Faramir at this time, because he thinks he can you know, get a little bit more headway. He doesn't have to have a power struggle with Faramir. He, Faramir will listen to counsel, where Dean Thor seems like he already, already thinks he knows best. So, uh, I also thought this is funny because mentioned how Gandalf told Pippin, hey, don't mention anything to anyone about Aragorn. And he almost screws up again. And and this is, I'm only going to read a couple sentences here because this is where he ends up in, in, uh, hanging out with uh, Baragond, who ends up being his tour guide, basically, of Minas Tirith. <laughs> and uh, he, he says here, uh, this is the, the couple sentences. He says, well, said Pippin, I have known of him all my short life, speaking about Gandalf, as you might say, and lately I have traveled far with him, but there is much to read in that book, and I cannot claim to see, have seen more than a page or two. Yet perhaps I know him as well as any but a few. Aragorn was the only one of our company, I think, who really knew him. Aragorn, said Baragon, who is he? Oh, stammered Pippin, uh, he was a man who went about with us, I think he's in Rohan now. So he definitely almost just screwed up and really, really messed that, that screwed the pooch there. But he uh, ended up coming back from that, so that was good. But thought it was nice. Pippin had his friend now. Him and Baragon discuss each other's journeys, and Pippin gets a rundown of the proper passwords and the meal times and all that important stuff. And uh, in the middle paragraph here on page 24 of my novel, it talks about what we saw in the extended edition of the Two Towers when Boromir took back Osgiliath. So this is another thing where the, the, the way they break it down, sometimes it's in the next book and it's in the previous movie, and sometimes it's in the next movie and in the previous book. It's very strange how they decided to break a few things down. But the, it's only in the extended edition of two where we saw that cutscene of Boromir retaking Osgiliath. But to, uh, to mention it, just here, just read this quick paragraph. It says, So near to Mordor, said Baragon quietly. Yes, there it lies. We seldom name it. But we have ever dwelt in sight of that shadow. Sometimes seems fainter and more distant, sometimes nearer and darker. It is growing and darkening now, and therefore our fear and disquiet grows too. And the fell riders, less than a year ago, they won back the crossings, and many of our best men were slain. Boromir it was that drove the enemy back at last across from that western shore, and we hold still near half of us Gileath for a little while. But we await now a new onslaught there, maybe the chief onslaught of the war that comes. So that's just like I said quick little rundown of that cutscene that we saw in Two Towers in the film. Then, 
the last paragraph here on page 24 through the first paragraph on page 25, this is again Baragon and uh, Pippin men talking to each other. It says, It is over late to send for aid when you already are besieged, answered Baragon, but I do not know the counsel of the Lord and his captains. They have many ways of gathering news, and the Lord Dinothor is unlike other men. He sees far. Some say that he sits alone in his high chamber in that tower at night and bends his thought this way and that. He can read somewhat of the future and that he will at times search even the mind of the enemy, wrestling with him, and that he is so that he is old and worn before his time. But however that may be, my lord Faramir is abroad beyond the river on some perilous errand, and he may have sent tidings. But if you would know what I think set the beacons ablaze, it was the news that came yesterday about a Lebanon, that there is a great fleet drawing near to the mouths of the Anduin, manned by the corsairs of Umbar in the south. They have long ceased to fear the might of Gondor, and they have allied with them with the enemy. And now they make a heavy stroke in his cause. For this attack will draw off much of the help that we looked to have from Lebanon and Belfalas, where folk are hardy and numerous. All the more do our thoughts go north to Rohan, and the more glad are we for these tidings of victory that you bring. That's important for a couple of things. Obviously, again, the, the Lord Dinathor is going you know, toe-to-toe with Sauron and trying to search the enemy's mind. That screams of power to me. But on top of that, there's a new, new player in the game for... The enemy, right? There's the, the, the Corsairs of Umbar in the south. They're going to have an attack that's going to kind of cut off the help that they're looking to receive from Belfalis and Lebanon, at least is what it seems as of right now. And so this is, you know, it is it, the walls are closing in on Gondor, and it doesn't look great. It's a long story short of that. So <laughs> anyways, uh, to talk a little bit more, last paragraph here on the page 25 to the first paragraph on page 26 this is you know this is where we're gonna get a re reappearance of some darker uh, characters I guess I can say but Pippin did not answer he looked at the great walls and the towers and the brave banners and the sun in the high sky and then at the gathering gloom in the east and he thought of the long fingers of the shadow of the orcs in the woods and the mountains the trees of Isengard the birds of evil eye and the black riders even the lanes of the Shire and of the winged terror the Nazgul he shuddered and hope seemed to wither, and even at the moment the sun for a second faltered and was obscured as though a dark wing had passed across it. Almost beyond hearing, he thought he caught a high and far up in the heavens a cry, a faint but heart quelling cruel and cold. He blanched and cowered against the wall. What was that? asked Baragon. You also felt something. Yes, muttered Pippin. It is a sign of our fall and the shadow of doom, a fell rider in the air. Yes, the shadow of doom, said Baragon. I fear that Minas Trith shall fall. Night comes. The very warmth of my blood seems stolen away. Not looking good, guys. Not looking good at all. Uh, now we kind of get to where there are people who are, are entering Gondor to bring aid. So Forlong of Losternak arrives in Gondor with part of his army. Uh, they, they, want, they want to bolster Gondor's numbers, but he only brought 200 men, and Gondor is hoping for 10 times that number is what they were mentioning. And then to talk about who else came to Gondor's aid, I'm going to read on page 31. There, this guy says, the, and the companies came and were hailed and cheered as they passed through gates. Men of the outlands marching to defend the city of Gondor in a dark hour, but always too few, always less than hope looked for or need asked. The men of Ringlow Vale behind the son of their lord, Dervorin, striding on foot, 300. From the uplands of Morthon, the great Blackroot Vale, tall Duin here and his sons, Dulian and Derefun, and 500 bowmen. Far from the Anfalus, the Langstrand far away, a long line of men of many sorts, hunters and herdsmen and men of little villages, scantily equipped save for the household of Goleskill, their lord, from Landon, a few gr- grim hillmen without a captain. Fisherfolk of the Ether, 
some hundred or more spared from the ships. Herluin the Fair, the green hills of Pinneth Gellin with three hundred of gallant green-clad men, and last and proudest, Emrahil, prince of Dol Amroth, kinsman of the lord, with gilded banners, bearing his token of the ship and the silver swan, and a company of knights in full harness riding gray horses, and behind them seven hundred of men-at-arms, tall as lords, gray-eyed, dark-haired, and singing as they came. So, uh, and then all, that was all less than three thousand full told, no more would come. The cries and tramp of their feet passed in the city and died away. The onlookers stood silent for a while. Dust hung in the air, and for the wind that died in the evening was heavy. Already the closing hour was drawing nigh, and the red sun had gone behind Mindolun. The shadow came down from the city. And so now that's, that we got less than, I don't know, a quarter of what you'd probably want against the forces of Mordor. I mean, think about it. The forces of Isengard alone, when they attacked Helm's Deep, was, what, 10,000 orcs? You're telling me we're going to defend the city of Gondor against Mordor, who probably has a lot more allies and larger armies than Isengard ever did. You're going to defend it with that, I don't know, let's say 50,000, 100,000 of the enemy with 3,000 people? It doesn't, doesn't look great. <laughs> doesn't look great. And then just to close this chapter out, the last paragraph on page 33, this is Gandalf here speaking to Pippin. It says, But the night will be too short, said Gandalf. I have come back here, for I must have a little peace alone. You should sleep in a bed while you still may. At the sunrise, I shall take you to Lord Dinathor again. No, when the summons come, not at sunrise. The darkness has begun. There will be no dawn. That is how that chapter ends, right? Yeah, I thought that was pretty sick. (laughs) And I know know I just kind of took a lot of that there. And so what I want to do is I want to turn over to Chase to see if he had any additional takeaways that I missed out or something, things that stood out to him, and then we'll, we'll keep it moving from there. That line kind of reminds me of like the Game of Thrones passages in the book, like uh, the Lord of Light will bring the dawn, <laughs> sort of like that. It was badass. But uh, yeah, no, I, th- I think you nailed it, man. That was perfect. You want to go ahead and take us away with chapter two? Yeah, no. Was there anything else that you, you thought that was important to add or any other notes that you had on it or did it kind of cover everything? What did you think? No, I thought you nailed it. I mean, this chapter really, I mean, it brings up kind of a question I have about Mary, which we'll get into later, because I wonder if it makes you wonder whether he actually did that because he thought that through by swearing his allegiance to Denethor, or if he just did that because he was like terrified and didn't know what to say. But um, you talking about, no, I mean, about Pippin, much... not Mary. You talking about, you're talking about or Pippin? Pippin okay. Yeah, <laughs> but say, yeah Mary, Mary's hanging out Pippin. with uh, King Thaden right now, man. <laughs> like, yeah. Fuck off, Mary. <laughs> Anyways, no, Greek. I'm the worst of names, man. That's where we go back to Ber- Baragon and Virgil. <laughs> no, yeah. Then, then what Almost was the other? Was Brigalad. Yeah, we were going to say we had like Brigalad, the old Ent from, I guess he was the youngest of the Ents. So I can't really call him old. I mean, he was old by, you know, people's standards of age, but he was the youngest Ent, and they were chilling with him back, you know. So all these B names, right? Brigalad, Baragon. is Virgil? Virgil was like 10 years old, I think it said. He was like 10 because he makes a passage in there that he asked Pippin how old he was and Pippin goes 29 <laughs> I think he was like 10 years old if I'm not mistaken there yeah I think you're right uh, because I remember he, he basically wanted to like wrestle him it was it was really funny I thought that <laughs> <laughs> yeah um he yeah, said let me know if you, uh, you find yeah he, he said I am 10 years already and soon shall be five feet I am taller than you 
So that is what that is. <laughs> so yes, he's ten years old and five feet tall. <laughs> Good deal. But yeah, man. No, I thought you nailed this chapter. Honestly, I got to be honest about this chapter. This chapter, I guess, because I didn't prepare myself for it. Like when I first opened the book. I mean, it's one of the longer chapters. It is just a lot of information, really. So there's not really a whole lot of action in this chapter. But I thought you nailed the facts there. So that was good stuff. But the good news is, now that we're going into chapter two, we have stuff that actually happens. So uh, I'll let you take it away, man. For sure. Absolutely. And yeah, you're right. That like This first chapter, I think it was more about setting the stage of what's going to come. Like this, setting the battle stage, getting to know the big players and everything. Talking about Dina Thor, mentioning how well Faramir is like throughout the city is going to be important. What the battlements looked like and how the defense of the city was set up. So it was more like a, a, you know, a setup for everything that's about to come. So it is definitely important. But in terms of action and, and you know cool things that occurred during it and the wow factor on on pages like you know like that wasn't a whole lot of it. But it was definitely um, it, it, it was an important chapter as far as everything else is concerned. Um, going into chapter two here, which is the passing of the Gray Company, this was really cool. I agree with you because this there's a big part here that just doesn't happen in the films at all. And I'll be honest, I completely forgot about it. But I, I, if you would have asked me about like what happens here, I would have been like, oh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> like, so that, there's some cool stuff. But anyways, this, the Passing of the Great Company chapter, it jumps to Mary, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli's perspective. And basically they're riding back to Edoras after the Battle of Helm's Deep. Already Gandalf and Pippin had ridden ahead to Minas Tirith, and so now we're kind of back to where that starts, and we're now in their perspective of, of everyone I just mentioned. But... Uh, a group of 30 men, including Elrond's sons, Elrohir and Eladon, led by the ranger Halabad, Hal- Halbarid Dunedon from the north, come to Thaden's men to seek Aragorn, and obviously they're graciously accepted. So we got a group of 30 rangers from the north, which is badass as it is. Like, they're some of the last of the Dunedain, and, you know, the rangers themselves are very hardy people. And, you know, this just, I've totally forgot that this happens in the book, that they are approached by these rangers. And on top of that, Elrond's sons, specifically. And we know how, how powerful Elrond is and his sons are. So just thought it was really cool. Um, and to talk about some things that happened, too, like, there's a lot of differences in, in this, like, this specific sequence of, the, of these individuals being a part of Aragorn's, you know, I want to say, like, posse but like his company specifically and we're gonna get there in a second but uh yeah i'm just gonna sit here and take uh the last break in the page on page 36 and i wanted to, to do it at the end of the same this is just a uh a foreshadowed passage i guess i can say right it says then the rider set out again and aragorn for a while rode with the dunedain and when they had spoken of tidings in the north and the south elro here said to him i bring word to you from my father the days are short if thou art in haste, remember the paths of the dead. Always my days have seemed to me too short to achieve my desire, answered Aragorn, but great indeed will be my haste before I take that road. That will soon be seen, said Elroyer, but let us speak no more of these things upon the open road. So a quick little foreshadow there about the paths of the dead. And uh, Halberd has a gift for Aragorn from the Lady of Rivendell, and this is the first reference we've heard towards Arwen, pretty much since we've 
met Arwen for a quick brief minute back in Fellowship of the Ring. Like she plays such a bigger role throughout the film series and in the novel series, at least up until this point, right? I, you know, like I said, it's going to be interesting going back through this and seeing what I've missed or what I've forgotten about over the years. But and even through this, it doesn't even mention Arwen by name. It just says the Lady of Rivendell, which obviously we know is Arwen because it's Elrond's daughter. So we don't find out what the gift is just yet because Aragorn tells Halbred to hang on to it for a bit longer. And so we're going to find out what it is and what its use is for. And it's actually kind of cool. And I was talking to Chase about it before we started the episode today. And it's going to be a few chapters before we get to it, but definitely worth mentioning. And then uh, Legolas and Gimli deduced that it was Galadriel who gave word to summon the Dúnedain to Aragorn's side. Because they said that he, the, the, the Halberad said he was given like a uh, summons. Like, hey, you know, we heard you called for aid. And Aragorn's like, I never sent for you. And so... Gimli at first thinks it's Elrond, then Legolas is like, nah, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely Galadriel, because she read the hearts of his desires, like she did with all of us, and, you know, he just wanted the help of his kinsmen, pretty much. Then, very similar to how Pippin enters the service of Lord Denethor, Merry enters into King Théoden's Esquire service. And so this is interesting how they're trying to make, like, they are making themselves as important as they possibly can with their stature and their abilities. I thought this kind of cool. And it's just interesting how it works out. But uh, to move on from that, the rangers brought Aragorn's own horse with him. So Aragorn has been using different horses throughout between you know the Mines of Moria, finding a new one in Rohan. And he actually has his own horse that is his from his homeland, I guess I can call it. I don't want to say homeland because the rangers don't really have one. They're just kind of nomadic. But uh, anyways, the horse's name is Roharin. Thought that was pretty cool. Uh, next thing, wanted to read the last paragraph on page 40 through the full page of uh, page 41. And this is Aomer and uh, people having like a little discussion going forward. It says, I'm in a troubled mind, Lord, he said, standing by the king's horse. I have heard strange words and I see new perils far off. I have labored long in thought and now I fear that I must change my purpose. Tell me, Thaden, you riding now to Dunharrow. How long will it be before you come there? It is now a full hour past noon, said Omer. Before the night on the third day from now, we should come to the hold. The moon will then be one night past its full, and the muster that the king commanded will be held the day after. More speed we cannot make. It is the strength of Rohan is to be gathered. Aragorn was silent a moment. Three days, he murmured, and the muster of Rohan will only be begun. But I see that it cannot now be hastened he looked up and it seemed that he made some decision and his face was less troubled then by your leave lord i must take new counsel for myself and my kindred we must ride our own road and no longer in secret for me the time of stealth has passed i will ride east by the swiftest way and i will take the paths of the dead the paths of the dead said theoden and trembled why do you speak of them Aomer turned and gazed at Aragorn, and it seemed to Merry that the faces of the riders that sat within hearing turned pale at the words. If there be in truth in such paths, said Theoden, their gate is in Dunharrow, but no living man may pass it. Alas, Aragorn, my friend, said Aomer, I had hoped that we should ride to war together. But if you seek the paths of the dead, then our parting is come, and it is little likely that we shall ever meet again under the sun. That road I will take nonetheless, said Aragorn. But I say to you, Aomer, that in battle we may yet meet again, though all the hosts of Mordor should stand between. You will do as you will, my lord Aragorn, said Theoden, 
It is your doom, maybe, to tread strange paths that others dare not. This parting grieves me, and my strength is lessened by it. But now I must make take the mountain roads and delay no longer. Farewell. Farewell, Lord, said Aragorn. Ride unto great renown. Farewell, Mary. I leave you in good hands, better than we hoped when we hunted the orcs to Fangorn. Legolas and Gimli will still hunt with me, I hope, but we shall not forget you. Goodbye, said Mary, and he could find no more to say. He felt very small, and he was puzzled and depressed by all these gloomy words, and more than ever, he missed the unquenchable cheerfulness of Pippin. The riders were ready, and their horses were fidgeting, and he wished they would start and get it over. So, that right there, a couple big things. This is the, the breaking of where now they're leaving Mary behind again, and it's going to be Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli. And this is the part where I was mentioning when they talk about the paths of the dead. In the film, it's different because only Legolas and Gimli go with him. Where in yep. this whole, not in this novel series, the whole Dunedain and Elrond's sons go with him through this. It's just wildly different. And this is so much cooler in the book, in my opinion. But anyways, the next big part that I have here is I thought it was really, really like this is a monumental moment and it does shift the nature of the war and, and Gandalf even says it later on in, in a chapter or two from now but Aragorn looked into the stone of Orthanc so I'm going to read on here like it says you have looked on page 42 and I'm going to read it all the way through the middle of the page on page 45 so it's like a three page read here but this is all super important about what's going to happen here and, and what he does and how he tries to do the best he can with what he's given to to play his part in this war. I'm talking about Aragorn. And this is just to this point, right? So this is Gimli kind of yelling at Aragorn. He says, You have looked in that accursed stone of wizardry? exclaimed Gimli, with fear and astonishment in his face. Did you say aught to him? Even Gandalf feared that encounter. You forget to whom you speak, said Aragorn sternly, and his eyes glinted. What do you fear that I should say to him? Did I not openly proclaim my title before the doors of Edoras? Nay, Gimli, he said in a softer voice, and the grimness left his face, and he looked like one who has labored in sleepless pain for many nights. Nay, my friends, I am the lawful master of the stone. I had both the right and the strength to use it. Or so I judged. The right cannot be doubted. The strength was enough. Barely. He drew a deep breath. It was a bitter struggle, and the weariness is slow to pass. I spoke no word to him, and in the end I wrenched the stone to my own will. That alone he will find hard to endure, and he beheld me. Yes, Master Gimli, he saw me, but in other guise than you see me here. If that will aid him, then I have done ill, but I do not think so. To know that I lived and walked the earth was a blow to his heart, I deem, for he knew it not until now. The eyes in Orthanc did not see through the armor of Theoden, but Sauron has not forgotten Isildur and the sword of Elendil. Now, in the very hour of his great designs, the heir of Isildur and the sword are revealed, for I showed the blade reforged to him. He is not so mighty yet that he is above fear. Nay, doubt ever gnaws him. But he wields great dominion nonetheless, said Gimli, and now he will strike more swiftly. The hasty stroke goes off astray, said Aragorn. We must press our enemy and no longer wait upon him for the move. See, my friends, when I had mastered the stone, I learned many things. A grave peril I saw coming unlooked for upon Gondor from the south that will draw off great strength from the defense of Minas Tirith if it is not countered swiftly. I deem that the city will be lost before ten days be gone. 
Then lost it must be," said Gimli. "For what help is there to send thither? When how could it come from? The, how could it come there in time? I have no help to send. Therefore, I must go myself," said Aragorn. "But there is only one way through the mountains that will bring me to the coastlands before all is lost. That is the paths of the dead." "The paths of the dead," said Gimli. "It is a fell name and little to the liking to the men of Rohan, as I saw. Can you living use such a road and not perish? And even if you pass that way." What will so few avail to counter the strokes of Mordor? The living have never used that road since the coming of the Rohirrim, said Aragorn, for it is close to them. But in this dark hour, the heir of Isildur may use it if he dare. Listen, this is the word that the sons of Elrond bring to me from their father in Rivendell, the wisest in lore. Bid Aragorn remember the word of the seer and the paths of the dead. And what may be the words of the seer, said Legolas? Thus spoke Malbeth the seer in the days of Arvidui, last king at Fornos, said Aragorn. Over the land there lies a long shadow, westward reaching wings of darkness. The tower trembles to the tombs of kings, the doom approaches. The dead awaken, for the hour has come for the oath-breakers. At the stone of Eric they shall stand again, and hear a horn in the hills ringing. Whose horn shall it be? Who shall call them from the gray twilight, the forgotten people? The heir of him to whom the oath they swore. From the north shall he come, need shall drive him. He shall pass the door to the paths of the dead. Dark ways, doubtless, said Gimli, but no darker than these staves are to me. If you would understand them better, then I bid you to come with me, said Aragorn, for that way I shall now take. But I do not go gladly. Only need drives me. Therefore, only of your free will would I have you come, for you will find both toil and great fear, and maybe worse. I will go with you, even on the paths of the dead, and to whatever end they may lead, said Gimli. I also will come, said Legolas, for I do not fear the dead. I hope the forgotten people will not have forgotten how to fight, said Gimli, for otherwise I see not why we should trouble them. That we shall know if we ever come to Eric, said Aragorn, but the oath that they broke was to fight against Sauron, and they must fight, therefore, if they are to fulfill it. For Erich there stands yet a black stone that was brought, it was said from Numenor by Isildur, and it was set upon a hill, and upon it the king of the mountains swore allegiance to him in the beginning of the realm of Gondor. But when Sauron returned and grew in might again, Isildur summoned the men of the mountains to fulfill their oath, and they would not, for they had worshipped Sauron in the dark years. Then Isildur said to their king, Thou shalt be the last king, and if the west prove mightier than the black master, this curse I lay upon thee and thy folk, to rest never until your oath is fulfilled, for this war will last through years uncounted, and you shall be summoned once again before the end. And they fled before the wrath of Isildur, and did not dare go forth to war on Sauron's part, and they hid themselves in secret places in the mountains, and had no dealings with other men, but slowly dwindled in the barren hills. And the terror of the sleepless dead lies about the hill of Erish, and the play, all the places where people lingered. But that way I must go, since there are none living to help me. He stood up. Come, he cried, and drew his sword, and it flashed in the toilet of the burg. To the stone of Erish I will seek the paths of the dead. Come with me who will. Legolas and Gimli made no answer, but they rose and followed Aragorn from the hall. And on the green there waited, still and silent, the hooded rangers. Legolas and Gimli mounted. Aragorn sprang upon Roharan. Then Halberd lifted a great horn, and the blast of it echoed in Helm's Deep. And with that they left away, riding down the coom like thunder, while all the men were left on the dike or the burg stared in amaze. So, now we saw what happened there. What's big and what the biggest takeaways I had is Aragorn wrestled the power of the stone away from Sauron. That's huge. 
that's really big. And he said now that Sauron is going to strike quicker, often the quicker stroke goes astray because it was not as calculated and he makes rash decisions. And that does come into play here later on throughout the, the book. So just that was really huge. And now they are going to take the path of the dead because he found something in that stone showing there is another army coming from an area that no one even, even thought about. And he was able to... Glean, like, take that from Sauron's mind about this other attack that's coming, and that's why he's got to take the paths of the dead. And I do think, like after you know, it's the differences between the film and the novel and that sort of section being who goes and how it was done, whatever. I did think it was cool that you know the the scene of when they finally arrive at Gondor, and I won't talk about that because that's that's really far away from what we're going to be doing. But just in that film itself, when like the ships arrive, I thought that was really cool. But uh, that's all I'll say to that. Uh, then, yes, the next part I have is Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli with the host of rangers arrive at Dunharrow, and Aragorn gives Eowyn a rundown of his next move, and Eowyn asks to go with him, which Aragorn does not allow. And this is interesting, because they have this really this dialogue that happens in the two towers before the Battle of Helm's Deep, but it happens here, and then talking about in the film, where in the book here, it happens in The Return of the King, and it's, it, it, it's a very similar uh, dialogue. It says, Aragorn asks Eowyn, what do you fear, lady? He asked. A cage, she said, to stay behind bars until use and old age accept them, and all chance of doing great deeds is gone, beyond recall or desire. And yet you counseled me not to adventure on the road that I had chosen, because it is perilous. So may one counsel another, she said. Yet yeah, I do not bid you flee from peril, but to ride with you where your sword may win renown and victory. I would not see a thing that is high and excellent cast away needlessly. Nor would I, he said. Therefore I say to you, lady, stay. For you have no errand in the south. Neither have those that go with you. They will go only because they would not be parted from you. Because they love you. And she turned and vanished into the night. So that actually happened in the two towers in the, in the film. But in the book, it's here in the, here in the King. And it's in a totally different sequence. It's just really interesting how they decided to do it. But um, not that that was wildly important. Just something that I, I, I thought that was interesting. So... I, what I ended up putting in my notes is that Eowyn throws the equivalent of a royal fit that she can't go with Aragorn. Like, she cries and has this whole thing, runs <laughs> off. Like, I thought that was interesting. But, yeah, and then, again, in the book, all the Dunedain with Elrond's sons go with them on the Path of the Dead. Uh, also, this is another quick difference, and obviously we'll mention more about it when the differences episodes come up. But if you guys remember, when Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli came to the Path of the Dead in the film... The horses, they wouldn't even go into it. They, like, they like, reared off and ran off, and they had to go in on foot where Aragorn willed the horses to keep going, all of their horses, all 30 of them, they all went through the Path of the Dead, all the horses did, so I thought that was interesting. Also, the Gimli, it showed him kind of, I don't want to say being a coward, right, because he still ended up going through it, but the characterization of how scared he was was crazy. He said he was almost crawling on, a, you know, walking forward like a, like a beast, like it was interesting. Um, like a creature there, because he was just he didn't want to turn back, but he, like all the, the the surrounding fear was is engulfing him. So, thought that was interesting. But uh, yeah, then, and then the one of the sons of Elrond, uh, Eladon, says, "Yes, the dead ride behind. They have been summoned, and they arrive at the stone of Eresh." And I'm going to read on page 53 here, and this is going to go from, and I'm just going to go to the end of the chapter because it's it's only a couple of pages, but. Uh, right here it says, To that stone the company came and halted in the dead of night. 
Then Elro here gave to Aragorn a silver horn, and he blew upon it, and it seemed to those that stood near that they heard a sound of answering horns, as if it was an echo in deep caves far away. No other sound they heard, and yet they were aware of a great host gathered all round the hill on which they stood, and a chill wind like the breath of ghosts came down from the mountains. But Aragorn dismounted, and standing by the stone, he cried in a great voice, Oathbreakers, why have ye come? And a voice was heard out of the night that answered him, as if from far away. To fulfill our oath and have peace. Then Aragorn said, The hour is come at last. Now I go to Pelagar upon Anduin, and ye shall come after me. And when all this land is clean of the servants of Sauron, I will hold the oath fulfilled, and ye shall have peace and depart forever. For I am Elisar, Isildur's heir of Gondor. And with that he bade Halbarad to unfurl the great standard which he brought, and behold, it was black, and if there was any device upon it, it was hidden in the darkness. Then there was silence, and not a whisper or a sigh was heard again all the long night. The company camped beside the stone, and they slept little because of the dread of the shadows that hedged them round them. When the dawn came, cold and pale, Aragorn rose at once, and he led the company forth upon the journey of the greatest haste and weariness that any among them had known, save he alone, and only his will held them to go on. No other mortal men could have endured it, none but the Dunedain of the north, and with them Gimli the dwarf and Legolas of the elves. They passed Tarlang's neck and came into Lamadon, and the shadow host pressed behind and fear went on before until they came to Calambel upon Cyril, and the sun went down like blood behind Penethgelin away in the west behind them. The townships and the fords of Cyril they found deserted, for many men had gone away to war, and all were left fled to the hills at the rumor of the coming of the king of the dead. But the next day there came no dawn, and the great company passed on into the darkness of the storm of Mordor, and were lost to mortal sight, but the dead followed them. And that is the end of the second chapter there, the passing of the great company. So yeah, that, that was really cool. Uh, there was a lot that happened in that. I'll go ahead and turn over to Chase to give some of his takeaways if he added stuff that I didn't have on there and what was important to him, and then we'll, we'll move forward. No, man, I think he nailed it. You had pretty much everything I did. I'm just going to read this one section here because I think it's interesting kind of what we were going back to in the two towers and how you said there's definitely some sort of something going on there with Aragorn and Eowyn because it's wild how upset she actually gets. Like, you said a, a tantrum. I think it was even more than that. You almost think, like, she thinks Aragorn's just going off to die and she'll never see him again and almost like a wife that's like committed to her husband going to war listen to this little passage here like talk about extreme (laughs) i say extreme when the light of the day was coming to the sky but the sun was not yet risen above the high ridges in the east aragorn made ready to depart his company was all mounted and he was about to leap into the saddle when lady eowyn came to bid them farewell she was clad as a rider in a girt with a sword in her hand she bore a cup, she set it to her lips and drank a little, wishing them good speed. And then she gave the cup to Aragorn, and he drank, and he said, Farewell, Lady of Rohan. I drink to fortunes of your house and of you, and all of your people. Say to your brother, beyond the shadows, we may meet again. Then it seemed to Gimli and Legolas, who were nearby, that she wept, and in one so stern and proud that seemed the more grievous. But she said, Aragorn... Wilt thou go? I will, he said. Then wilt thou not r- let me ride with this company as I have asked? 
I will not, lady, he said. For that I could not grant without leave of the king and of your brother, and they will not return until tomorrow. But I count now every hour, indeed every minute. Farewell. Then she fell to her knees, saying, I beg thee. Nay, lady, he said, and taking her by the hand, he raised her. Then he kissed her hand, sprang into the saddle, and rode away, and did not look back, and only those who knew him well were near to him saw the pain that he bore. But Eowyn stood still as a figure carven in stone, her hands clenched at her sides, and she watched them until they passed until the shadows under the black Dwemerberg, the haunted mountain in which was the door of the dead. When they were lost into view, she turned, stumbling as one that is blind, and went back to her lodging. But none of her folk saw her parting, saw this parting, for they hid themselves in fear and would not come forth until the day was up, and the reckless strangers were gone. Talk about extreme, man! Like that's a little bit over the top. Like wow, that's a uh, yeah. It's like uh, you know, I, I don't want to call it like i see it but it's just a little bit uh you know might not want to get locked down with that one <laughs> that's all i'll say i thought it was a little bit there's definitely something going on too because i wonder how arwen would feel about a little kissy on the hand there I'm gonna give some <laughs> just all i'll say but i'll turn it back over to you brother that's really funny yeah, no, I guess I, I, I put like I did described it as a royal tantrum or a royal fit, but yeah, no, you're right. It was, it was, it was a little much for how little they really know of each other, right? They didn't have a ton of time together, and the time that they did have was very, very short lived because <laughs> she was taking care of the pe- like the elderly and the children who couldn't fight in Helm's Deep, and he was off making sure that they could survive the night. Like, when did they have that amount of time to really get to know each other to that level that she's like? crying to this point i don't know man it was a big point too just uh not to stop you there and interrupt you but even in the in the film it feels like they have more time together in the film and she didn't even pull that it's like this is in the novel it's like i feel like she's barely even talked to him almost like love at first sight like she saw that super hot guy at the prom and he never said hey or talked to her ever and she's falling at her and he's like i've loved you for years i've loved you for years it's like i don't I don't, I don't like, dude, know. I don't know you. you. <laughs> He's like, I don't know you. But yeah, I don't know. I thought maybe it was like she didn't get to sing that weird song we saw her sing <laughs> two towers. I don't know, man. I thought it was a little it was uh what's our word here? It's a bit uncomfortable to watch on almost you know it would have taken her up on that offer was uh Toby Maguire <laughs> with the venom there. <laughs> But uh, I'll send it back over to you, man. That sounds good. The cool thing about this next chapter for the Muster of Rohan, I don't have terribly too much. I've got a few things I thought were kind of important, but for the most part, it's not going to be as much reading passages. It's just going to be some quick bullets here. Is that uh, Theoden and his men arrive at Harrowdale, and Aelmer tries to counsel Theoden to ride out the war by staying put in Edoras, and Theoden tells him he will not hide in the hills. Like He's going forward to this war no matter what the end may be. If it's the end of him and his house, that's it. But he's like basically even he he didn't mean to do this in a mean way, but even kind of compared Aomer to Wormtongue. He's like, hey, don't speak these kind of soft words into me like your Wormtongue. I'm gonna call you my son, but you know we're 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 fighting this war, like you know, because like, he said, look, at the end of the day, if, if the bad guys win, 
What's, what use is going to be for me hiding on the hills? They're going to take us over and kill us anyways. Where, let's say the good guys win, all of a sudden we're the, the cowards that didn't show up to war. Like, no, it's a lose-lose. Like, let's go out. Like, we're, we're doing this. So, anyways, um, another, and I, I, I quoted it from the book. It says, Winged Shadow, which is the Nazgul, passed over Edoras and perched at uh, Medusel three days ago, according to Dunhir, when he was speaking to King Theoden. I will go ahead and read this first paragraph on page 59. And this is, again, just talking about the natural defenses of Harrodell itself, too. Uh, it says, Mary wondered how many riders there were. He could not guess the number in the gathering gloom, but it looked like a great army, many thousands strong. While he was peering from side to side, the king's party came up under the looming cliff on the eastern side of the valley. And there suddenly the path began to climb, and Mary looked up in amazement. He was on a road of the like of which he had never seen before. A great work of men's hands in years beyond the reach of song. Upwards it wound, coiling like a snake, boring its way across the sheer slope of rock. Steep as a stair, it looped backwards and forwards as it climbed. Up it horses could walk, and wains could slowly be hauled, but no enemy could come that way except out of the air, if it was, as if it was defended from above. At each turn, the road there was great standing stones that carved in the likeness of men, huge and clumsy limbs, squatting, cross-legged, with their stumpy arms folded on fat bellies. Some in the wearing of the years had lost all features, save the dark holes of their eyes that still stared sadly at passerbys. The riders hardly glanced at them. The Pukiel men, they called, and heeded them with little. No power or terror was left in them, but Mary gazed at them with wonder and a feeling of up, almost of pity, and they loomed uh, up mournfully in the dusk. So I just thought that was kind of cool of another almost the natural defenses of these areas and why people choose to reside there or take you know refuge in times of war it's just really important to you know not only have the better army but to have the better strategy and the better uh, you know the, the I just overall having a area that's easily defendable is really important too especially when that they're coming to take over your lands. They're coming to take you out. Like, one thing, you know, you have to defend your own area, but when you're facing an onslaught, it's important to have these natural defenses and choosing places that are smart. So uh, I thought that was pretty cool to just talk about for quickly. But uh, Eowyn greets Theoden and tells him that Aragorn already passed this way and that he took the paths of the dead, to which Aomer believes he will not return. And even Theoden says that his heart tells him that he will not see Aragorn again. So that's interesting. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe he spoke that into existence. Maybe not. We'll see what happens uh, later on in, in this novel, right? But uh, uh, Hurgon, he is an errand messenger of Gondor. He arrives at Thaden's camp and presents him a red arrow and says that Dinothor asks for all King Thaden's strength and speed unless Gondor should fall at last. And Thaden tells him that Rohan will come with 6,000 men, though it's going to take a week, to which Hurgon says that that might be too long, and by the time Rohan arrives, there may only be ruined walls left. And then... Uh, I wanted to go ahead and just read quickly on page my page my book 67. It's like the second paragraph to the second to last paragraph here. It says, Mary saw many folks standing, looking up and muttering. All their faces were gray and sad, and some were afraid. With a sinking heart, he made his way to the king. Hergon, the writer of Gondor, was there before him, and beside him stood now another man like him, dressed alike but shorter and broader. As Mary entered, he was speaking to the king. It comes from Mordor, Lord, he said. It began last night at sunset. From the hills in the east fold of your realm, I saw it rise and creep across the sky. And all night as I rode, it came behind, eating up the stars. Now the gray cloud hangs over all the land between here and the mountains of shadow, and it is deepening. War has already begun. And for a while the king sat silent, and at last he spoke. So we come to it in the end, he said, the great battle of our time, in which many things shall pass away. But alas, there is no longer need for hiding. We will ride the straight way and the open road with all our speed. 
the muster shall begin at once, and wait for none that tarry. Have you good store, Minas Tirith, for if we must ride now in all haste, then we must ride light, with but meal and water enough to last us in the battle. We have a great store long prepared, answered Hiragon. Ride now in as light as swift as you may. Then call the heralds to Eomer, said Theoden, let the riders be marshaled. And Eomer went out, and presently the trumpets rang in the hold, and they were answered by many others from below, but the voices no longer sounded clear and brave as they had seemed to Mary the night before. Dull they seemed, and harsh in the heavy air, braying ominously. So it started with Theoden saying that, hey, we might not going to be able to make it there for a week. And then this other messenger came and said, dude, war's starting. He's like, shit, all right, well, we're going to go now. So, uh, yeah, so Theoden ends up telling Mary that he cannot take Mary with him to war, but Mary does not want to be left behind. Eowyn tells Mary that Aragorn requested that Mary be armed for battle before he left, and Mary tries to plea with Theoden one last time to go with the army to Gondor, which Theoden denies, and just when it looks as if Mary is going to be left behind again, a strange rider that calls himself Durnhelm approaches and agrees to take Mary with them. And that's pretty much how the chapter ends with the takeaways that I had on it. What are some of the things that you took away from this chapter? No, I think you, I think you did excellent. I mean, you pretty much nailed it. Um, yeah, I mean, that it doesn't, I mean, I had written down, not written down, but to read like the last passage because I thought it was really cool because it does kind of mention that they don't know if that rider um, was exactly the stature of a normal like man. <laughs> so just kind of throwing that out there. But that's all I really had besides what you had. So you nailed it. Now, uh, Take us away with the uh, big action for the day, man. Yeah, this is going to be an interesting chapter. and There are going to be big parts that I read throughout here. The, this is the Siege of Gondor. And this is where, like Chase had mentioned, part of the big battle really begins. And So this is going to be a, a combination that I go through between reading passages and just quick bullet points. So this is going to be a fun one to, to tackle. But... First thing I have on the chapter of the Siege of Gondor is Denethor commanded Pippin to be the new esquire of his chamber and to go get dressed in the armor that was made from at Denethor's request. And it's funny because the men of Gondor start to call Pippin the Prince of the Halflings. And they say it in their own language, but that's the translation, is the Prince of the Halflings. And the first kind of big piece of action that happens here is that five Nazgul are chasing men on horses across the Pelennor Plains. They were trying to get back to the gate. And this is, I'm going to go ahead and, and read this part because I think it's really cool. Um, it says, Black riders, muttered Pippin, black riders of the air. But see, Baragon, he cried, they are looking for something, surely. See how they wheel and swoop always down that point over there? And can you see something moving on the ground? Dark little things. Yes, men on horses. Four or five. Ah, I cannot stand it. Gandalf, Gandalf, save us. And in a long screech, rose and fell. He threw himself back from the wall, panting like a hunted animal. Faint and seemingly remote, though the shuddering cry he heard, winding up from below the sound of a trumpet, ending on a long high note. Faramir, the Lord Faramir, it is his call, said Baragon. Brave heart, but how can he win to the gate if these foul hellhawks have other weapons than fear? But look, they hold on. They will make the gate. No, the horses are running mad. Look, the men are thrown. They are running afoot. No, no one is up. The ride, he, he rides back to the others. That will be the captain. He can master most beasts and men. Ah, there goes one of those foul things stooping on him. Help, help. Will no one go out to help him? Faramir. And with that, Baragon sprang away and ran off into the gloom. Ashamed of his terror, while Baragon of the guard thought first of the captain whom he loved, Pippin got up and peered out. 
At that moment, he caught a flash of white and silver coming from the north, like a small star down on the dusky fields, and moved with the speed of an arrow and grew as it came, converging swiftly with the flight of the four men towards the gate. It seemed to Pippin that a pale light was spread about it, and the heavy shadows gave way before it. And then as he drew near, he thought he had heard like an echo in the walls a great voice calling. Gandalf, he cried. Gandalf, he always turns up when things are darkest. Go on. Go on, White Rider. Gandalf, Gandalf, he shouted wildly like an onlooker at a great race, urging on a runner who was far beyond encouragement. But now the dark swooping shadows were aware of the newcomer. One wheeled towards him, but it seemed to Pippin that he raised his hand and from it... A shaft of white light stabbed upwards, and the Nazgul gave a long wailing cry and swerved away. And with that, the four others wavered, and then rising in swift spirals, they passed away eastward, vanishing into the lowering clouds above and down on the Pelennor, it seemed for a while less dark. Pippin watched, and he saw the horsemen and the white rider meet and halt, waiting for those on foot. Men now hurried out to them from the city, and soon they all passed from, the sea, from sight out into the under, out into the outer walls, and he knew that they were entering the gate. And guessing that they would come at once to the tower and the steward, he hurried to the entrance of the citadel. There he was joined by many others who watched the race and the rescue from the high walls. It was not long before a clamor was heard in the streets leading up from the outer circles, and there was much cheering and crying of the names of Faramir and Mithrandir. And presently Pippin saw torches, and followed by a press of people, two horsemen riding slowly. One was in white, but shining no longer, pale in the twilight, as if his fire was spent or veiled. The other was dark, and his head was bowed. They dismounted, and grooms took Shadowfax and the other horse. They walked forward to the sentinel at the gate, Gandalf steadily, his gray cloak flung back, and a fire still smoldering in his eyes, the other clad in all green, slowly swaying a little as a weary or wounded man. Pippin pressed forward as I passed under the lamp beneath the gate arch, and when he saw the pale face of Faramir, he caught his breath. It was the face of one who has been assailed by a great fear or anguish, but has mastered it and now is quiet. Proud and grave he stood for a moment as he spoke to the guard, and Pippin, gazing at him, saw how closely he resembled his brother Boromir, who Pippin had liked from the first, admiring the great man's lordly but kindly manner. Yet suddenly for Faramir his heart was strangely moved with a feeling he had not known before. Here was one with an air of high nobility such as Aragorn at times revealed, less high perhaps, yet also less incalculable and remote, one of the kings of men born into a later time, but touched with the wisdom and sadness of the elder race. He knew now why Baragon spoke his name with love. He was a captain that men would follow, that he would follow, even under the shadow of the black wings. Faramir, he cried aloud with the others, Faramir! And Faramir, catching a strange voice among the clamor of the men of the city, turned and looked down at him and was amazed. Whence come you? he said, a halfling, and in the library of the tower? Whence? But with that Gandalf stepped to his side and spoke. He came with me from the land of the halflings, he said. He came with me, but let us not tarry here. There is much to say and do, and you are weary. He shall come with us, indeed he must, for if he does not forget his new duties more easily than I do, he must attend on his lord again within the hour. Come, Pippin, follow us. So at length they came to the private chamber of the lord of the city. There deep seats were set about a brazier of charcoal, and wine was brought, and there Pippin hardly noticed stood behind the chair of Denethor, and felt his weariness little. So eagerly did he listen to all that was said. When Faramir had taken white bread and drunk a draught of wine, he sat upon a low chair and his father's left hand. Removed a little upon the other side sat Gandalf in a chair of carven wood, and he seemed at first to be asleep. For at the beginning Faramir spoke only of the errand upon which he had been sent out ten days before, and he brought tidings of Ithilien and of movements of the enemy and his allies, and told of the fight on the road when the men of Harad 
and their great beasts were overthrown, a captain reporting to his master such matters as had often been heard before, small things of border war that now seemed useless and petty, shorn of their renown. Then suddenly Faramir looked at Pippin. But now we come to strange matters, he said, for this is not the first halfling I have seen walking out of northern legends into the southlands. At that, Gandalf sat up and gripped the arms of his chair, but he said nothing, and with a look of stop, and with a look, he stopped the exclamation on Pippin's lips. Denethor looked at their faces and nodded his head as though in sign that he had read much there before it was spoken. Slowly, while the other sat silent still, Faramir told his tale, with his eyes for the most part on Gandalf, though now and again his glance strayed to Pippin, as if to refresh his memory of others that he had seen. As a story was unfolded of his meeting with Frodo and his servant and of events at Henneth Anun, Pippin became aware that Gandalf's hands were trembling as they clutched the carven wood. White they seemed now and very old, and as he looked at them, suddenly a thrill of fear Pippin knew that Gandalf, Gandalf himself, was troubled, even afraid. The air of the room was close and still. At last, when Faramir spoke of his parting with the travelers and of the resolve to go to Kirith Ungol, his voice fell and shook his head and sighed. Then Gandalf sprang up. Kirith Ungol, Morgul Vale, he said. The time, Faramir, the time. When did you part with them? When would they reach that accursed valley? I parted with them in the morning two days ago, said Faramir. It is fifteen leagues thence to the vale of the Morgul, Morgul Duin, if they went straight south. And then they would still have five leagues westward of the accursed tower. At swiftest, they could not come there before today, and maybe they have not come there yet. Indeed, I see what you fear, but the darkness is not due to their venture. It began yesterday, even all Athelion was under shadow last night. It is clear to me that the enemy has long planned an assault on us, and its hour had already been determined before the travelers left my keeping. Gandalf paced the floor. The morning of two days ago, nigh on three days of journey, how far is the place where you parted? Some twenty-five leagues as a bird flies, answered Faramir, but I could, I could not come more swiftly. Yesterday I lay at Cair Andros, the long isle in the river northward which we hold in defense, and the horses are kept on the hither bank. As the dark drew on, I knew haste was needed, so I rode thence with three others that could also be horse. The rest of my company I sent south to strengthen the garrison at the fords of, of Asgiliath. I hope that I have not done ill, he looked at his father. Ill, cried Dinathor, his eyes flashed suddenly. Why do you ask? The men were under your command. Or do you ask for my judgment on all your deeds? Your bearing is lowly in my presence, yet it is long now since you turned from your way at my counsel. See, you have spoken skillfully as ever, but I have I not seen your eye fixed on Mithrandir, seeking whether you said well or too much. He has long had your heart in his keeping. My son, your father is old, but yet not dotard. I can see and hear, as is my wont, and little of what you have half said or left unsaid is now hidden from me. I know the answer to many riddles. Alas, alas for Boromir. If what, have I, if what I have done displeases you, my father, said Faramir quietly, I wish I had known your counsel before the burden of so weighty a judgment was thrust on me. Would that have availed to change your judgment, said Denethor? You would have still done just so, I deem. I know you well. Even your desire is to appear lordly and generous as a king of old, gracious, gentle. That may well befit one of high race if he sits in power and peace, but in desperate hours of gentleness may be repaid with death. So be it, said Faramir. So be it, cried Denethor, but not with your death only, Lord Faramir, with the death also of your father and of all your people, whom it is your part to protect now that Boromir is gone. 
Do you wish, then, said Faramir, that our places had been exchanged? Yes, I wish that indeed, said Denethor, for Boromir was loyal to me and no wizard's pupil. He would have remembered his father's need and would not have squandered what fortune gave. He would have brought me a mighty gift. And for a moment, Faramir's restraint gave way. I would ask you, my father, to remember why it was that I, not he, was an Athelian. On one occasion, at least, your counsel has prevailed. Not long ago, it was the lord of the city that gave the errand to him. Stir not the bitterness in the cup that I mix for myself, said Denethor. Have I not tasted it now many nights upon my tongue, foreboding that worse yet lay in the dregs? And now indeed I find, would it not were so? Would that thing, would that this thing had come to me? Comfort yourself, said Gandalf. In no case would Boromir have brought it to you. He is dead and died well. May he sleep in peace, yet you deceive yourself. He would have stretched out his hand to this thing, and taking it he would have fallen. He would have kept it for his own, and when he returned to you, you would not have known your son. The face of Denethor sat hard and cold. You found Boromir less apt to your hand, did you not? He said softly. But I, who was his father, say that he would have brought it to me. You are wise, maybe, Mithrandir, yet with all your subtleties you have not all wisdom. Counsels may be found that are neither the webs of wizards nor the haste of fools. I have in this matter more lore and wisdom than you deem. What, then, is your wisdom? said Gandalf, enough to perceive that there are two follies to avoid. To use this thing is perilous. At this hour to send it in the hands of a witless halfling into the land of the enemy himself, as you have done, and this son of mine, that is madness. And the Lord Denethor would have done what then? Neither, but most surely not for any argument would he have set this thing at a, at a hazard beyond all but a fool's hope, risking our utter ruin if the enemy should recover what is lost. Nay, it should have been kept hidden, hidden dark and deep, not used, I say, unless at the uttermost end of need, but set beyond his grasp, save by a victory so final that what then would befell would not trouble us being dead. You think, as is your wont, my lord, of Gondor only, said Gandalf, yet there are other men and other lives in time still to be, and for me, I pity even his slaves. And where will other men look for help if Gondor falls, answered Denethor. If I had this thing now in the deep vaults of this citadel, we should not then shake with dread under this gloom, fearing the worst, and our counsels would be undisturbed. If you do not trust me to endure the test, you do not know me yet. Nonetheless, I do not trust you, said Gandalf. Had I had done so, I could have sent this thing hither to your keeping and spared myself and others much anguish. And now hearing you speak, I trust you less, no more than Boromir. Nay, stay your wrath. I do not trust myself in this, and I refuse this thing even as a freely gift. You are strong and can still in some matters govern yourself, Denethor. Yet, if you had received this thing, it would have overthrown you, were it buried beneath the roots of Mindoluin, still it would burn your mind away as the darkness grows, and yet the worst thing that follows soon shall come upon us. So I know that was a lot there, guys, but that was some really important stuff to kind of start off on this this whole chapter. Because what that tells me here is Denethor now knows the errand and that Faramir let Frodo and Sam go knowing that they had the ring of power with them, and Denethor wanted them to bring it to the city. Denethor thinks he's smart. He's like, oh, I know not to use it. I'm just going to put it away dark and deep and only have the need for it in like the, the darkest of times. And Gandalf's like, well, see, this is exactly why we didn't do this, because this, that's not how it goes. Like, he's like, I don't trust myself in this. Like, I, I could have had this ring from the start, back in the Fellowship of the Ring. Frodo said, take it. And I said, no, because I can't, I can't handle it. And if I can't handle it, you can't handle it. No, no, man, no hearts of men can. 
Like this was like the best option. The Inthor thinks Gandalf's an idiot for go- throwing uh, Frodo into Mordor, trying to get him to destroy the ring, and it's just uh, it's starting to crumble. In my opinion, it it really does affect the relationship of of everyone involved here. And if you're if you're fighting uh, an enemy of this kind of vastness and this huge host of of evil, you're gonna want to be united. And these three people are anything but united. Like Faramir and Gandalf, they're kind of united. <laughs> Dinathor literally told Faramir that he wished that he had died and that Boromir had lived. Can you imagine telling? <laughs> can, like so seriously, seriously, can you really like, think, imagine being a father and telling your younger son, "Hey, man, you should have died, and your older brother should still be here." Like that's fucked up. Like that's really yeah, fucked, it's up. fucked up. Like dude. it's fucked up. It's just he doesn't have the same sort of compassion or caring. He thinks that Boromir is just more loyal to him, and yeah, you know, it, it really shows a lot of Dinathor's character and. You know, um, some parts of that were characterized well in the film, but you know what this also does too. Though this whole conversation and what Faramir was trying to to get out of it, and Gandalf was trying to get out of it, is that Frodo's still alive. The mission is not over yet. He saw him two days ago, and that's really exciting news for someone who hasn't seen Frodo since Moria, where Gandalf fell. Right, so that's like an excitement is that he's he's still kicking like the, the, the it's not not all lost yet he's still got the ring it's been only two days since he's last been seen so that's one of the biggest takeaways on that on that part too so thought that was pretty big now and this is this is kind of a full circle moment and i wanted to read this, this is the third paragraph here on um page 83 I'm sorry, the first paragraph on page 83. This is what I was talking about when we talked, when he said uh, Aragorn looked into the stone back in the previous chapter, and how I said that Gandalf gets an idea of why Mordor is striking a little sooner than regular. It says, um, Gandalf put his hand on Pippin's head. There was never much hope, he answered, just a fool's hope, as I have ever been told. And when I heard of Kirith Ungol, he broke off and strode to the window as if his eyes could pierce the night in the east. Kirith Ungol, he muttered, why that way, I wonder? He turned, just now, Pippin, my heart almost failed me, hearing that name. Yet, in truth, I believe that the news of Faramir brings has some hope in it, for it seems clear that our enemy has opened his war at last and made the first move while Frodo was still free. So now for many days he will have his eye turned this way and that, away from his own land. And yet, Pippin, I feel from afar his haste and his fear. He has begun sooner than he would. Something has happened to stir him. And obviously we know what happened is Aragorn revealed himself in the Seeing Stone to Sauron, and that made him you know, move quicker than he would should have, right? Then on page 85, I thought this was kind of cool. There is almost exact di- dialogue between what happens in the film, and we'll talk about that more but later on when we get to the film part. But this, is, this dialogue between Dinathor and Faramir, it's, it's almost word for word. It says... Uh, all were silent, but at length Faramir said, I do not oppose your will, sire, and since you are robbed of Boromir, I will go and do what I can in his stead if you command it. I do, said Dinathor. Then farewell, said Faramir, but if I should return, think better of me. That depends on the manner of your return. And then Gandalf, it was that last spoke to Faramir before he rode east. He said, do not throw your life away rashly or in bitterness, he said. You will be needed here and for other things in war. Your father loves you, Faramir, and he will remember it before the end. Like that was almost dead on, uh, like dialogue that the the film took from that. And I thought that was pretty cool, but Gandalf ends up going out to Asgiliath and brings back wounded men and tells Dinathor that the king of the Nazgul has taken the outer walls. And Dinathor is kind of an asshole and asks if Gandalf left because he was overmatched by the king of the Ringwraiths. Like, damn man, like, <laughs> this guy is just kind of a dickhead. 
But uh, now I'm going to go ahead and read the last sentence here on page 88. And I'm going to go ahead and take it all the way through the third paragraph on page 90. But this is also a really important thing. It says, Now the main retreat was scarcely two furlongs distant. Out of the gloom behind a small company of horsemen galloped, and all that was left of the rear guard. Once again they turned at bay, facing the oncoming lines of fire. Then suddenly there was a tumult of fierce cries, and horsemen of the enemy swept up. The lines of fire became flowing torrents, file upon file of orcs bearing flames, and wild southern men with red banners shouting with harsh tongues, surging up and overtaking the retreat. And with a piercing cry of the dim, the sky fell the winged shadows, the Nazgul stooping to the kill, and the retreat became a rout, and already the men were breaking away, flying wild and witless here and there, flinging their weapons away, crying out in fear and falling to the ground. And then a trumpet rang from the citadel, and Dinathor at last released his, the sortie. Drawn up with the shadow of the gate, and under the looming walls outside, they had waited for his signal, all the mounted men that were left in the city. Now they sprang forward and quickened to a gallop, and charged with a great shout. And from the walls an answering shout went up, for the foremost on the field rode the swan knights of Dol Amroth with their prince and his blue banner at their head. Amroth for Gondor, they cried, Amroth to Faramir, and like thunder they broke upon the enemy on either flank of the retreat. But one rider outran them all, swift as the wind in the grass. Shadowfax bore him, shining, unveiled once more, a light starting from his upraised hand. The Nazgul screeched and swept away, for their captain was not yet come to challenge the white fire of his foe. The hosts of the Morgul intent on their prey, taken at, taking at unawares in a wild career, broke and scattering like sparks in a gale. The out companies, with a great cheer, turned and smote their pursuers. Hunters became the hunted. The retreat became an onslaught. The field was strewn with stricken orcs and men, and a reek rose, torches cast away, sputtering in a swirling smoke, and the cavalry rode on. But Dinathor did not permit them to go far. Though the enemy was checked and for the moment driven back, great forces were flowing in from the east. Again the trumpet rang, sounding the retreat, and the cavalry of Gondor halted. Behind the screen, the out companies reformed. Now steadily they came marching back. They reached the gate of the city, entered and stepping proudly, and proudly the people of the city looked, down, looked on them and cried their praise. And yet they were troubled in their heart, for the companies, they were grievously reduced, and Faramir had lost a third of his men. And where was he? And last of all he came, his men passed in, the mounted knights returned, and the rear banner of Dol Amroth and the prince, and in the arms before him on the horse bore the body of his kinsman, Faramir son of Dinathor, found upon the stricken field. Faramir, Faramir, men cried, weeping in the streets, but he did not answer, and they bore him away up the winding road to the citadel and his father. Even as a Nazgul swerved aside from the onset of the white rider, there came flying a deadly dart, and Faramir, as he held at bay a mounted champion of Harad, had fallen to the earth. Only the charge of Dol Amroth had saved him from the red southern swords that would have hewn him as he lay. So, that, you know, some pretty good action there. I think that was cool. Uh, <laughs> that, but what ends up happening here, and the big takeaway, is that Faramir is wounded. Uh, they, they were able to hold off, like, they, they were retreating back, and the cavalry, the horse, the, you know, the mounted men on horses were able to, to take out the orcs that were trying to destroy all the last of the forces as Gilead. and so they were able to get away but you know they just took a heavy toll and Faramir he suffered a pretty pretty serious wound and we don't know if he's going to make it or not and to kind of continue on from that to the second paragraph on page 92 to the first paragraph on page 93 it says that the engines did not waste the shot upon the indomitable wall it was no brigand or orc chieftain that ordered the assault upon the lord of Mordor's greatest foe 
A power of mind and malice guided it. As soon as the great catapults were set, with many yells and the creaking of rope and winch, they began to throw missiles, marvelously high, so that they passed right above the battlements and fell thudding when the first circle of the city, and many of them done by some secret art, burst into flame as they came toppling down. And soon there was great peril of fire behind the wall, and all who could be spared were busy coiling the flames and sprang up in many places. Then among the greater cast there fell another hail, less ruinous but more horrible. All about the streets and lanes behind the gate, it tumbled down, small round shot that did not burn. But when the men ran to learn what they might be, they cried aloud or wept, for the enemy was flinging into the city all the heads of those who had fallen fighting at Asgiliath, or on the Ramus, or in the fields. They were grim to look on, for though some were crushed and shapeless, and some had been cruelly hewn, yet many had features that could not be told, and it seemed that they had died in pain and were all branded with the foul token of the lidless eye. The marred and dishonored as they were, it often chanced that thus a man would see again the face of someone he had known, who he had walked probably with once in arms, or tilled the fields, or ridden upon a holiday from the green bells in the hills. In vain the men shook their fists at the pitiless foe that swarmed before the gate. Curses they heeded not, nor understood the tongues of the western men, crying with harsh voices like beasts and carrion birds. But soon there were few left in Minas Trith who had the heart to stand up and defy the hosts of Mordor. For yet another weapon, swifter than hunger, the Lord of the Dark Tower had, dread and despair. The Nazgul came again, and as the Dark Lord now grew and put forth his strength, so their voices, which uttered only his will and his malice, were filled with evil and horror. Ever they circled above the city, like vultures that expect their fill of doom of men's flesh. Out of sight they shot, and they flew, and yet they were ever present, and their deadly voices rent the air. More unbearable they became, not less, at each each new cry. And at length even the stout-hearted would fling themselves to the ground as the hidden menace passed over them, or they would stand, letting their weapons fall from nerveless hands, while into their minds a blackness came. And they thought no more of war, but only of hiding, and of crawling, and of death." So the war is not uh, not going well for Gondor at the moment. <laughs> not doing too well. <laughs> so, and then we get this couple more things here. Dinothor kind of finally cracks and is staying by Faramir's side, who is basically in a fevered coma from poison that was in the weapons that were used against him, that, that shaft that hit him. And even though his city needs their lord, he's basically given up at this point. And Gandalf himself took command of the last defense of Gondor. And what does Dinas Thor decide to do? He's like, well, we're just going to go ahead and burn myself and my son alive. We're going to call it a day. <laughs> you, guys, <laughs> you guys have fun defending the city. It's all lost. Everyone, you know, so you know, he finally cracked, man. He finally <laughs> cracked. So Dinas Thor decides to build a uh, pyre for himself and Faramir, even though they're currently both still alive, even though Faramir's in this level of a coma. And then so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and read the last paragraph on page 99 all the way through to the end of the chapter, which is just, I believe, half a page. Yeah, perfect. So the, to the end out this chapter for my takeaways, it says, In rode the Lord of the Nazgul, a black shape against the fires beyond. He loomed up, grown to a vast menace of despair. In rode the Lord of the Nazgul under the archway that no enemy ever yet had passed, and all fled before his face, all save one, there waiting Silent and still in the space before the gate sat Gandalf upon Shadowfax. Shadowfax, who alone among the free horses of the earth endured the terror, unmoving steadfast as a graven image, and wrath Dinan. You cannot enter here, said Gandalf, and the huge shadow halted. Go back to the abyss prepared for you. Go back. Fall into nothingness that awaits you and your master. Go. 
the black rider flung back his hood, and behold, he had a kingly crown, and yet upon no head was visible was it set. The red fire shone between it and the mantled shoulders, vast and dark, and from a mouth unseen there came a deadly laughter. Old fool, he said, old fool, this is my hour. Do you not know death when you see it? Die now and curse in vain. And with that he lifted his high sword and flames ran down the blade. Gandalf did not move, and in that very moment, away beyond in some courtyard of the city, a cock crowed. Shrill and clear he crowed, wrecking nothing of wizardry or war, welcoming only the morning that in the sky far above the shadow of death was coming with the dawn. And as if in answer, there came from far away another note. Horns, horns, horns. In dark Mindaluian sides, they dimly echoed. Great horns of the north, wildly blowing. Rohan had come at last. And that is the end of that chapter there, the Siege of Gondor. Those are the things I took away that I thought were important. Turned over to Chase to uh, add some stuff on there if he saw it or you know, give his takeaways. No, that was it, man. <laughs> I mean, you took, I mean, you you got uh, pretty much all of it. The only thing I was going to say is, yeah, Denethor's <laughs> an ass. <laughs> Remember, he told Pippin, he was like, bring me my pyre. <laughs> he was basically like, you're released then. <laughs> you're released. <laughs> I thank you for that, but you are now released. And he was like, you're free to go die how you see fit. <laughs> yeah, that was wild. <laughs> it's wild man but yeah no i think you nailed that chapter that was good stuff uh and i'll let you go ahead and take the last one sounds good and the good thing about the last one here is i don't have any big readings just one last part to kill the end of the chapter here so the big bullet points i have from this last chapter the ride of the rohirrim uh Elfhelm is the person who commanded mary's uh what they call aorid which is their their grouping basically uh, the, he made it so the whole group acted as if Mary didn't exist. And Mary didn't quite understand it, but there was a reasoning behind it. Uh, they had something, you know, he, he even had like a, like a little dialogue with him at one point. He's like the talking bag, right? Like, like whatever, because he's not supposed to be there. And uh, Dernhelm, as Chase said and mentioned before, doesn't really have the stature of what a normal rider would appear like. And so you would think that there's some level of understanding between Dernhelm and Elfhelm here about keeping Mary a secret. So I just uh, wanted to mention that. Then we get introduced to what are called the Wild Men of the Woods. And the leader of it, the, I guess he calls himself Gon Burigan, uh, he offers their services to Théoden because they hate the orcs. And basically to tells them, we'll take you across the secret path because what's going to happen right now, the road that you are on, you're going to come face to face with a, a, a force that already is predicting you're going to come to their aid. And so they have more men than you. So at the end of this like, fight that you have with them, you're going to be greatly diminished whether you win the fight or whether you lose the fight. But we do not want orcs in here. We hate the orcs with all our heart. Like We're going to help you out. We're going to take you through the secret path. The only thing that we ask is you don't hunt us like beasts anymore. And, you know, Thaden obviously accepts the help because, you know, they were going to walk into a fight that they didn't know was going to happen at the border of Gondor. So that was great. Uh, like I said, they, he offers to take Thaden's men to the secret pass in the woods. So they don't go head on to the enemy's army, which the, the enemy's army is expecting them on the main road. And Thaden accepts this proposition. And as they were walking through, the, not walking, but as they were marching through the pass with their horses and, and on some people on foot and all that, they, we see... 
the dead bodies of two Gondor Aaron Riders were found. One of them being Hergon, which they could only tell because he was holding the red arrow, but their heads were cut off and missing. So that's kind of fucked up. <laughs> but uh, that's kind of what <laughs> Mordor does, right? They, they, they want to scare you. They want to bring death and despair. And like, shit, that could happen to me. They're going to take my head off. Like, you're not going to know who I am. Like, desecrate the dead bodies. But uh, anyways, they end up getting to the part where they no longer need the wild men of the woods. The wild men of the woods depart. They brought them to the, the area where they could take it from there. And at night, the Rohirrim makes their move and continues along the secret path. And then I'm going to go ahead and read through the middle paragraph on page 110, just through the end of the chapter. And like I said, not too much reading on this end, but uh, middle paragraph says, Then suddenly Mary felt it at last, beyond a doubt, a change. Wind was in his face, light glimmering. Far, far away in the south, the clouds could dimly be seen as remote gray shapes rolling and drifting. Morning lay beyond them. But at that same moment, there was a flash, as if lightning had sprung from the earth beneath the city. And for a searing second, it stood, dazzling far off in black and white, its topmost tower glittering like a needle. And then, as the darkness closed again, there came rolling over the fields a great boom. And at that sound, the bent shape of the king sprang suddenly erect. Tall and proud, he seemed again. And rising in his stirrups, he cried in a loud voice, more clear than any there had ever heard a mortal man achieve before. Arise, arise, riders of Theoden! Fell deeds awake! Fire and slaughter, spear shall be shaken, shield shall be splintered, a sword day, a red day before the sun rises. Ride now, ride now, ride to Gondor. With that he seized a great horn from Guthloth, his bannerman, and he blew such a blast upon it that it burst asunder, and straightway all the horns in the host were lifted up in music, and the blowing of the horns of Rohan in that hour was like a storm upon the plain and a thunder in the mountains. Ride now, ride now ride to Gondor. And suddenly the king, the king cried to Snowmane, and the horse sprang away. Behind him his banner blew in the wind, a white horse upon a field of green, but he outpaced it. After him thundered the knights of his house, but he was ever before them. Aomer rode there, with the white horse tail on his helm, floating in his speed. And the front of, his, of the first arid roared like a breaker foaming to the shore, but Theoden could not be overtaken. Fay he seemed, or the battle fury of his fathers ran like new fire in his veins. And he was born upon Snowmane like a god of old, even as Oromi the Great in the Battle of Valor, when the world was young. His golden shield was uncovered, and lo, it shone like an image of the sun, and the grass flamed into green and about the white feet of his steed. For morning came, morning and a wind from the sea, and darkness was removed, and the hosts of Mordor wailed, and terror took them, and they fled and died, and the hooves of wrath rode over them. And then all the hosts of Rohan burst into song, and they sang as they slew, for the joy of battle was on them, and the sound of their singing that was fair and terrible came even to the city. And that is the end of chapter 5, The Ride of the Rohirrim. And that's the last chapter that we will cover today. But before you kind of move forward into any sort of debates we may have, I want to see if Chase had any additional takeaways from this chapter that he specifically wanted to point out. No, I mean, they were just preparing for battle. It was kind of cool the way it was read, too, because it mentions how like they ran into a group of orcs they would kill like the little small group of orcs and then keep going kill the little group of orcs again and then they were kind of like on i pictured it they didn't say this but like on the hill like ready to go save the day but it's kind of like are you i mean you know that's for next week <laughs> but it's uh i mean it, it's i it's kind of interesting in a way because 
Theoden, if you look back in the two towers, like where Wormtongue basically, you know, I don't want to say like brought him to a point of weakness, but I want to say like with Wormtongue there, <laughs> he he would never be acting like he's all powerful now. Like he's going to save the day. Like, here we go. So I, it's interesting because it just, I guess it's kind of like now Gandalf is leading the the charge on the other end. It's almost like he has this new sense of realism of hope. Like I can I can do this now, I guess. So, uh, it, it you know it's all kind of gearing up for next week. But it was cool because we had a good bit of uh, you know a good bit of action in this episode today versus you know you're sitting around drinking mead with Briegelad for like two and a half hours <laughs> so uh yeah man no uh what kind of debates and stuff did you have for today yeah i i did want to say like to, to your point there the i love how this ended off and how we've been covering it five chapters at a time simply for the fact that this this episode is, leaves off on a cliffhanger in a way you know what mm-hmm. i mean like like we had some action and some battle parts that you know almost like a little bit of a taste and then next week, obviously, is going to be the, the big climax and the huge battles and the really key moments that happen that we're going to remember from the series, you know, long after. So it's just really cool how it, it played out today. Um, but yes, no. So I guess my the biggest debate that I would have from everything that we read in this in this chapter here is if you were, let's say you were Dina Thor here and you had full command of... Minas Tirith, knowing that the enemy was coming, what are some changes that you would have made to to bolster or strengthen the defense of the city? What are some actions you would have taken? What are some things that you might have like delegated to some other people? How would you put them in the best position to survive? I guess is my biggest question to you. What what mistakes do you think he made, and like how would you rectify them up until this point, what we saw? Because obviously we're not going to get into things that haven't happened yet, you know, and talking more about things that happen next week in the chapters, but just tell me what, what you would have done at the start to do things a little bit differently. They put Gondor in the best position to be successful. Well, first thing I would have done would have instead of hiding in my tower up top waiting to find out what happened to Boromir I would have actually reached out for aid <laughs> to other people <laughs> versus basically throwing in the towel like he's kind of been doing and it's interesting to think I, I feel my perspective on this versus kind of how it's portrayed in the film I think more of the idea that is trying to portray in the novel it's almost like he's kind of gotten so depressed because of the loss of Boromir like he just doesn't care anymore like (laughs) go yeah you are free I thank you for your service you are free to die how you see fit like we're all about to die here like who cares like he's not even trying to put up a fight like what's wild too is Gondor you know if you look at you know Middle Earth Gondor has one of the greatest armies, actually. Like, uh, honestly, they're the ones that Rohan should have called for aid. And, but is, so I think in a way, like, you almost kind of wonder do you think Gondor could have, if they had a strong leader, 
been able to hold up a resistance on their own for a while. But I think the big problem is Denethor just doesn't care at all. <laughs> like, no cares at all. Um, but what would I had done is, first thing I would have called for aid. Um, second, uh, you know, I guess you can go into battle plans a little bit. I probably would have put out scouts in a way, like how the uh, uh, Rohan Riders did, to kind of guard the perimeter more, because then you can kind of see what's coming from a distance. Um, even though you've kind of seen, the problem is now you have the winged Nazgul, and once, you know, the Black Captain showed up, you know, it's kind of like in the words of Obi-Wan, it's over, Anakin. I have the high ground. <laughs> like, I mean, there's not a whole lot you can really do from that point. So I would kind of take more of the Helm's Deep approach and start really building a barrier there and really uh, kind of, I guess, kind of like how they did on the long night, like start kind of guarding the trenches. And I would try to take them on in a flanks position, which I think is what really they're kind of starting to do here with Gandalf as the lead but there's just so many different things that Denethor could have done to begin with to prepare but the bottom line is I don't think he cared enough to prepare but what I would have done is reached out for aid I would have put scouts on there I don't think there is any consideration you can make to reaching out to elves or anything because I don't think they have that kind of relationship but you definitely could have reached out to other areas earlier and definitely made more of kind of a barricade situation where you could have held your own at least until uh, the time being for a little bit longer even tried to reach out to Mithrandir which is Gandalf so I don't know what are your thoughts I would have done a few things differently than, than he did and I think the biggest mistake Denethor made was a prideful like arrogance of wanting to keep Osgiliath. He wasted a lot of his army by having them try to fight on a, in an area where they were they were at a, a disadvantage. There was a small host because you can't have you can't split your forces of a defense of a main city and trying to keep an, a separate one and expect like like that's two small forces. Either you breach out all your force at the one area in front of Skelly, or you pull everyone back and try to have a big main defense of the city. Like the, the fact is, he didn't want he you know, Boromir in his mind. The, 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 his last great deed of Gondor was that he took back Osgiliath, and it's like Denethor wanted to make sure that they didn't relose that after you know Boromir took it back for them. But I think that really screws them in a in a large way. So for me, I would have pulled everyone back from Osgiliath, and we would have defended the city at full strength instead of getting massacred at Osgiliath and only having a few riders come back. And then, because think about what that did to the morale of everyone at the city. Those were some of their best fighters, and you even see like Faramir retreating. Faramir is one of these captains that are beloved by the entire city. Everyone that meets Faramir thinks he's a great captain and a great guy. And you see him retreating from the, the, the forces. You're like, shit, like if he's retreating, what, what hope do we have you know, here? So I would definitely have pulled everyone's back. Uh, I definitely would have. In, in the planes themselves, I would have attempted because there's really only one way you can attack Gondor mm -hmm. from the front over the planes. Right. So if you know that, I mean, I definitely would have set up, I don't know, 
exactly what level of technology they had at this point in, in uh, Middle Earth for the time being. But I definitely would have set up stuff throughout the fields that made it difficult for the enemy to cross it easily. So like at least delay them and then you know, being able to take some arrows from far away or whatever it may be. But make it hard so they couldn't really bring those catapults in, the things that they were starting to shoot missiles from. You know, if you set up a bunch of like trenches like in all the spots, like almost you were mentioning, and very similar in the, in the long night end where they put those wooden things with spears at the, at the at the ends of them and put them all and staggered them across the plains. It's gonna be very hard to move like uh, those catapults in. At the very least, like if they still were able to do it because of the numbers and move all these trenches and and these these things out of the way. It still would have delayed them to allow aid to come sooner to where it wasn't such a like last minute ditch effort of shit like we're kind of fucked but hopefully we got someone to come save the day right <laughs> um you know so like that that's one of the things i would have done i definitely would have laced the planes with stuff that slowed the progress of the enemy i would have pulled everyone back from osgiliath um and then on top of that i almost have an idea instead of calling for aid sooner as a like, when as it pertains to some of these outer areas I would definitely have called for aid, but I would have I would have positioned them in a way to where, in my in, like like the hope for me would be that the enemy wouldn't know that aid was coming. It'd be like they were they were like in a hidden area, like a hidden area, but not n- not near them. So basically, someone's like, oh man, like no one came to help them. They're they're screwed. Like let's go ahead and full on force take Gondor, and then you know as they can fully commit their armies to the front of the plains, all of a sudden they're getting swept to the side by the the prince of. Belfalus and like the other areas that came to help them yeah. with like the three thousand there, and then on top of that, hopefully with the slow moving of the the enemy with what we did in the plains and and, and really kind of uh, slowed them down a bit, that gave Rohan enough time to come from the other side. So you basically, you know, you're you're attacking a, a brick wall front, then you got people attacking it from the right side, Rohan attacking it from the left side, and you're just kind of you're stuck. You know that that's kind of what I would I, that's what I would have done. I would have done a lot better than that. I also would have taken Gandalf's counsel on a lot of things as well too about you know who to reach out to, how to talk, you know whatever things that he would have taken in there. I would definitely want to work work more collaboratively with other great minds versus thinking I just knew it all. So those are just some of the bigger things that I would have done to uh, you know really give myself the best position to be as successful as possible. Look at the end of the day, Mordor has like countless numbers, and maybe it would have been all in vain anyways. But I think we would have had better morale, a better chance tactically and strategically, and on top of that, it would have give uh, you know. Frodo and, and Sam enough time to, you know, have the, what they needed to do what they needed to do on their end because the, the battle would have been such a stronger and more like condensed one and, and, it, and it would have gone maybe not at, you know just because of the sheer numbers maybe it wouldn't have gone fully in the good guys' favor but it definitely would have been a lot uh, I think it would have been a lot cleaner than it would have ended up actually being um, up until this point so <laughs> that that's that's my thought process on and that's kind of the things I would have done differently. Um, but yeah, I guess like, what do you think about that? And then once you give me your thoughts on it, uh, go ahead and jump into the debate that you got for the day. Yeah, no, I agree with you entirely. I think really what this comes down to is why, I mean, we don't want to get into next week as much, but why they're having so much of a tough time here, in my opinion, yeah, it's because they're all kind of spread out because it comes down to leadership and Dina Thor just doesn't care honestly like he it, if you want to get really into it he sent Faramir in my opinion to his Gil- Gilead hoping he wouldn't come back <laughs> like in my opinion like I mean <laughs> so I mean this really comes down to crappy leadership but in the words of Dina Thor you are free to go die as you see fit 
<laughs> so, I mean, but no, nah, so I agree with you. Um, my debate comes to this. Pippin, as he swore his allegiance to Denethor, and in the book it kind of makes it seem as, you know, it's a little bit different than in the film, not to go into a bunch of differences, but in the film it was almost like Gandalf like thought that was more of a that was more of a fool's choice. Whereas in the book he was like, you know, that was really heartfelt. Like almost like he appreciated that. Um do you think that was Pippin actually thinking that through? Like, oh I might actually be able to help here. This'll give me actually some safety and some shelter here where i'll actually be able to go throughout the city i can move up in my ranks a little bit and actually be able to maybe play a prominent role here in gondor or do you think it was more of he was intimidated and just reacting as pippin usually does just trying to put himself in there feel like he's doing something to support gandalf and then he's got himself stuck in a long-term situation i think neither of those things um i think he felt a sense of debt that he owed because boromir a great man died just to defend saving him and and mary and he feels like he needs to repay that debt and on top of that i think that dino thor like stung his pride by making it seem as if like pippin was wasn't anything like how how he said like how did Boromir such a great man fall while you're still here to live to tell the tale and you know they basically almost in an accusatory or a dismissive sort of way so I think he like injured Pippin's pride and also Pippin recognized not not recognizes but feels that he owes a debt to Boromir for giving his life for his and I think that was like the reactionary thing it's like okay well you know obviously you think that I owe a debt I I can see why you come from that so here I'll go ahead and repay my debt here my sword's yours and he kind of did it like out of an obstinate way like a like you know and it ended up working out in his favor but that's what I think it was I don't think it was he had any sort of uh in, in intelligence behind it i don't think he had a plan i think it was a reactionary thing in in a certain way but i think it was more towards the fact that he felt that he had to repay the debt that was owed for boromir's life that kind of saved him and pippin i guess but that's what i think um i kind of think the same way as you do i think it was a little bit more though of pippin just being a dumbass uh (laughs) (laughs) is what i think like uh, peregrine toque you fool <laughs> he knocked that damn armor into the well in the mines and caused that big ass ruckus and i mean he picked up the palantir i agree with you i think his heart was in the right place kind of but he has too much of a track record like ron weasley for me to think he actually thought this through like to think he actually planned this and didn't tell anybody absolutely not i think it was a little bit of both i think you're right i think his heart was in the right place and he felt like this is what he should do but i do think he was reacting a little bit on instinct sort of like ron weasley when he did the doggy paddle and he was halfway off of the broomstick you know 30 feet above the ground (laughs) that's kind of what i think (laughs) i don't really uh, so I don't know. It's tough to say. I want to give him benefit of the doubt, but his resume precedes him. <laughs> like Kate Beckinsale and Van Helsing, Mr. Van Helsing, your resume precedes you. Ironically, the guy that plays Carl is Faramir, so it applies here. 
<laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, so uh, I release you, <laughs> Peregrine Duke. You're free to go die as you see fit. Before we go, I'll throw this quick. We'll do it really quickly. Malice in the Chalice card. Just because people have asked us, you probably knew it was coming. We had some big breaking news over the weekend. We don't know exactly how true it is, but considering we're doing a fantasy series here, and it is a big fantasy franchise of our own, they're considering bringing John <laughs> back again. John Snow back again. People couldn't be more excited about it. I've heard, you know, different ways this and that. Uh, what do you think? Do you think we should be excited for the Jon Snow sequel that could possibly, uh, rumor is, being developed right now at HBO? I think George should finish the damn books. That's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think we got to start, you know, focusing on projects that are still unfinished before we jump into some brand new ones. But. I don't know. To answer the question specifically about the Jon Snow spinoff, I just I, the the ending of the series left such a bad taste in my mouth that I just don't have the level of like excitement that I would normally have. If this series ended really great, I think I'd be super stoked for it. But they just kind of ruined it for me, and especially Jon Snow's character specifically he became pretty much useless in the eighth season. Like he ended up killing Danny, I guess was his like saving grace. You know, yeah, I remember in the Dark Night, the Long Night, he was just pretty much pinned down by dead Viserion's blue fire and couldn't get anywhere. It didn't really do a whole lot. Like, I, I just, like, what is he going to do now? He's banished beyond the wall. We're just going to see him, you know, the only cool thing that could possibly happen in my mind is that maybe they find that baby child that the Night King turned, and we saw the end of that one episode where the baby's eyes turned blue, and maybe that baby's a new Night King, and the White Walkers still uh, have a chance to, come back again and cause another whole ordeal issue it's like the only sort of thing because outside of that what are you going to do just fight wildlings beyond the wall that haven't conformed to you know the idea that everyone can hang out together we're going to fight the thens the thens are going to be mad and they're trying to eat some dead mamas and dead papas and you got to fight them off like i just don't i don't really <laughs> know <mama> like <laughs> dead papa <laughs> right I, I just i really don't know what they're going to do with it so i i don't care of course i'll watch it and of course we'll cover it but I, I, my level of excitement <laughs> is not that high, so whatever. Like I said, my biggest thing is like George. Let, let's finish the fucking books, man. How about we do that? <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I would really like to see him finish the Winds of Winter because we've been waiting quite ten years for that thing. Um, I think it would have been really awesome to see like an Arya Stark spin-off series like if she goes west of westeros and it got really detailed with the faceless men or something like where she went back with that since keep in mind i mean it's up to you whether you want to determine whether any of this is canon because we don't know if this is going to be in the book or this was george's plan that he's telling them like we have no idea what's going on so basically he can do george can do whatever he wants in these series and call it canon because <laughs> Like, we don't really know, and he can just write it so that it matches, technically, I guess. But um, you're kind of right. I, I agree with you. Like, it's interesting to think, like, I don't know who the villain really would be unless they kind of find more White Walkers based on maybe that baby that... I don't recall anything 
you know, I don't know, maybe like children of the forest come in play somehow or something that happens where you find more wildling groups or something. But I feel like if you're going to make this successful, you'd have to bring in, you know, Arya at some point. Maybe you could find Danny's body and bring her to, uh, you know, Kinvara <laughs> somehow. <laughs> maybe like that's the big saving grace. But I mean, you're but, right. But he, like, what would they have to do with Jon Snow, though? You know, what I mean, they're in total opposite sides. Like, like what's his yeah, name? Dro- Dro- Drogon took Danny's body back to probably I don't know, uh, like Volantis. the Shadowlands. Maybe Volantis. Maybe like I don't know. Uh, it's just I don't know what they like, like how that because he's on the total opposite side of the world, right? So if they take you know like Essos, if the Drogon took her body back to Essos, and Jon Snow is north of the Wall in fucking Westeros, like how does that even correlate? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, I, I get it. Uh, it's interesting to see where this goes. I, I oh, I meant to say a shy, by the way. That was the Shadowlands. I was a shy. That's the one. I was yeah, shy. Yeah. Um, I mean, it makes me kind of wonder if people are because of quick side note here, and then we'll wrap this up. Do you think because of how successful Spider-Man No Way Home is, do you think a lot of people are trying to start cat really capturing audiences based on nostalgia? I guess, but like what's the nostalgia? It's only been out for 3 years. You know what I mean? Not even like <laughs> what what nostalgia are we bring in? Like I get it for Spider-Man cuz it's been 20 years since we saw Tommy McGuire <laughs> McGuire on screen as as Spider-Man like that that like but, I don't know. What was it? 2019? The last May of 2019 was the last episode premiere. Like, what? What nostalgia is that? It was three years ago, and two of those years was a pandemic. So, did we really miss anything? I don't know, dude. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't. I don't know. Um, I mean, maybe I think there were hints, and we talked about it on the show two years ago, that they could possibly open this up to like a spinoff series because I remember him mentioning some some quotes to like uh Tyrion, i think said something something came along the lines of like would they see each other again and y'all know but i mean i agree with you i think he needs to finish the books but i mean it's up to george whatever he wants to do <laughs> so off to the shadowlands with his malice in the chalice i just wanted to get your take on it with that let's uh i'll let you close this out here man Sounds like a fan, brother. Yeah, I mean, this has been an an excellent uh, start to the final book with the, all the action that came up to it, and also the the cliffhanger kind of leads us on. So, really happy to kind of dive into the next five chapters next week and get a conclusion of this big battle that we'll see, in, at least on the the fields of Gondor itself, before it gets into other other types of. Um, climatic moments throughout the remainder of the novel but yeah no it's exciting and so if this is your first time joining us i really do hope that you enjoyed what you heard and that you want to stick around and if you're looking to figure out where you can find us we're on all social media pages we have an instagram page at official ridiculous patronus we have a tiktok page at ridiculous patronus a backup instagram at fact underscore or underscore fantasy uh, backup TikTok at fact underscore or underscore fantasy. A uh, Facebook fan page, Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. We've got a YouTube page as well, Ridiculous Patronus. We're on Twitter at RP Factor Fantasy. We're on Snapchat, RP Factor Fantasy. And on top of that as well, you know, those are the places to find us on like the social sites. And we try to do things a little bit different in each area so that way it's fun and fresh. We also do have our own website as well, ridiculouspatronus.blogspot.com that Chase does a great job updating with as well, when including scenes from whatever we're covering during that episode. So that's great too. Uh, but on top of that, 
in terms of the podcast itself, if you're wondering where to find the podcast, if you're an Apple user, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, you can find us on iTunes. If you're an Android user, you can find us on Spotify, Google Play, we're on Amazon Music, we're on Audible, we're on iHeartRadio, we're on Stitcher, we're on Acast, we're on our host site, Podbean. Wherever you get your podcast, Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy are there, and we'd really love it if you leave your reviews and your comments and star ratings based on what you think of our show and the episodes that you listen to. We love the audience engagement, and we're hopeful that uh, you know it. You guys continue to you know, stick around, and you know if you've been with us from the very beginning, Chase coined the phrase, and I love to say it here towards the end is that you are the shields that guard the realms of fantasy. But we are out for the day because you know this has been another ridiculous production. Chase and Josh. Factor Fantasy. Signing Signing off. off.